Aaron Miller was one of the nation's most prominent civil rights lawyers. You might have seen his name while driving around L.A. There's a park and a school named after him in South Los Angeles. And now his home in Silver Lake has been tapped to become a historic city landmark. Even so, there are a lot of folks who don't know about his life and his work fighting discrimination. Dr. Amina Hassan wrote a book about Miller titled Lauren Miller, Civil Rights Attorney and Journalist. And she's with us right now. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Hassan. Oh, thank you for having me. What what was it about Lauren Miller that made you want to spend so much time learning and, and writing about him? Well, I only knew his name as, you know, growing up from Los, in Los Angeles. And but I didn't know more than that. And um, years later, I asked my father. And my father at the time when I was growing up, before he became an engineer, was a mail carrier. And he said he went into the Kansas City State House in Los Angeles with two white guys who were also carriers, letter carriers, and they refused to serve my father. So he hightailed it to Lauren Miller because he was so well known. And also my mother knew his wife, Juanita Miller, but I just just knew his name. And then later on, when I was looking for a project, I went out to the Huntington Library and they had just received um, the latest documents, uh, 16 dusty boxes that had been in the basement of his son for years. Where did he grow up, and and what brought him to L.A.? Well, he was um, he was born in 1903 in Tender, Nebraska, uh, during the American coal famine, and he's the son of a former slave who married a white woman, which was quite unusual at the time. And uh, they're extremely poor, but he was they knew he was extremely intelligent and smart. Even the judge in the town would invite him to sit in the courthouse to watch the proceedings. So he was, uh, he was, you know, well-respected. The family was well-respected. They were, I think, the only black family in, uh, in Pender, uh, Nebraska at the time. Uh, he graduated in 1928 uh, from Washburn College in Kansas with a degree in law. Uh, but he, Although he trained as a lawyer, what he really wanted to do was to become a writer, to write novels and poems. But he said he was dragged kicking and screaming into the practice of law because he said, you know, in those days, a Negro could be a doctor, lawyer, or school teacher, and that's about all. He came to Los Angeles in 1929, and he first worked as a journalist but the need to put food on the table at the height of the Great Depression propelled him to work as both a journalist and a lawyer. And by that time, he was married. Thurgood Marshall called him the best civil rights attorney on the West Coast. Tell us a little bit about the time that he was a journalist. He co-founded the Los Angeles Sentinel, which is still in business. And uh, like 1934, I think that was. And later in 1951, he bought the California Eagle, one of the longest running African-American newspapers in the West. He was writing about the black community in Los Angeles. And for the Los Angeles Sentinel, he was their attorney and he wrote most of the editorials. He didn't really have a byline in those days. Uh, but in 1951, uh, he was, you know, it was quite apparent that he wrote a great deal of what was in the newspaper. He became, as you mentioned, we talk about his his work as an attorney. One of and Thurgood Marshall saying that he was one of the the best 
Is, is there a particularly important case that he worked on that, that stands out to you? Yeah, um, along, alongside Thurgood Marshall, uh, Lauren Miller argued two landmark civil rights cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, the first one in 1948, whose decisions effectively abolished racial restrictive housing covenants. The Shelley v. Kramer case, that's the really famous one, <clears throat> is taught in every law school in the country. He's also credited with writing the majority of the law briefs in Brown v. Board of Education that ended segregation in the public schools. Um, during the war, he, along with uh, Southern California ACLU, challenged the internment of the Japanese Americans and um, even the National Office of ACLU wouldn't challenge that, but the Southern California one, and I believe a Northern California one did, but Miller was a part of that. And um, because he lived in Silver Lake, he had Japanese neighbors, and when they went off to war, he held their deeds until they returned. Well, well thank you for coming on and talking about his life. I know there's there's still a, a lot of interest in his home in Silver Lake and, and the push, of course, to make it a, an historical place. Dr. Amina Hassan, author of the book Lauren Miller, civil rights attorney and journalist. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it being asked. Instead of saying these people are make some excellent workers because they're tough and all like that, they say they make some excellent slaves, you know. They had the incorrect position going in. It could have very easily taken the other route. Say, no, they'll be co-workers, you know, work side by side. And all of us working together, we can get it done. Could have told Indians that. Same thing. Some of them did start off with, but then they got attitude. They know we're going to take it all. You know, we ain't going to leave you nothing. Right? <laughs> Indians said, well, you know, I thought we were going to share. I mean, you know, that's what we sat down at Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, and say we all work together and all like that. Well, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think I need to. I think I, what I need to do is going back to giving you a good whipping sheet. <laughs> That's all it was. Chief <laughs> mm. said, there's plenty of land here for everybody. We got more land than we can take care of and whatnot. So, I mean, we welcome you and all like that. Well, no, I'm going to take it all. <laughs> Give you a bottle of whiskey. That's what you're going to get out of the deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. And that's wow. what they did. And they admit that they did it. They wrote books about it, bragged about it. Yeah, how many Indians were killed today, you know? Only good Indians are dead Indians. Mm. Higher gas prices often supercharge demand for new mines to help electrify the U.S. transportation grid. But in the American West right now, several proposed sites, like those where copper's found, are on land considered sacred to Native Americans. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. 
Traditionally, you might not expect to hear a global mining executive talking about the perils of the climate crisis, but companies like Rio Tinto Copper know the energy market is changing fast. The world is is making a transition, and the world wants to make a transition quickly, right? And, and the Biden administration has these very ambitious goals um, so we can address climate. This is Vicky PC in Rio Tinto's Phoenix headquarters. The company has been trying to develop its resolution copper mine near here for more than two decades. Lately, copper is in high demand. Think electric vehicle batteries. And with global supply chain disruptions, they see a window. To have a domestic source of copper that could help fuel the low carbon economy in this energy transition, I think is really important. PC says the mine would meet up to a quarter of current U.S. copper demand, and the tribes will benefit. But as opponents point out, the ore would be exported for processing. Large amounts of water would also be needed in one of the hottest places in the world, only getting drier with climate change. Protect Oak Flat! Members of the San Carlos Apache tribe marched through the town of Globe, Arizona, near Oak Flat, where the mine is planned. It's a 45-mile march and run from their isolated reservation to their ancestral land of Oak Flat, an important ceremonial site. 22-year-old Nolan Pike worries the war in Ukraine will be used as an excuse to fast-track the mine. If you're going to say you're going to go green, then do things that are green. And by doing the largest copper mine in North America, extracting it the most detrimental way to harm our environment, that's telling me that's not going green at all. The tribes are behind a legal challenge to halt a federal land swap passed during the Obama administration that allows the copper mine to finally be developed. Western Apaches say the U.S. government has broken treaties meant to protect their sacred lands. Wensler Nosey Sr. is a former chairman of the San Carlos tribe who's been camping at Oak Flat in protest. Yeah, this is our ancestral land. I mean, we, we have indigenous rights. You know, the government hasn't done anything to really secure our children and our children's future. Still, just down the canyon in the town of Superior, there's a sense that the deposit is so big, the mine will get developed eventually anyway. Mayor Mila Besich's family has mined here for generations. You know, we're very respectful of our, our tribal neighbors and their concerns and their consultation. But at the same time, if this mine doesn't open, it's a huge detriment to America's economy. Well, this is one of several fights at proposed green energy mines from Arizona to Nevada to Idaho, where tribes say they're once again being told to get out of the way for the greater good. I've always said that the energy sector in the United States has been subsidized using tribal lands. Angelique Eaglewoman is a professor at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law, where she's been tracking these growing indigenous protest movements. She says the U.S. government has historically run roughshod over its treaty obligations, but today may be different. And we think we've got the ear of a U.S. president that believes in the dignity of the United States promises that were made to Native Americans. President Biden is in a bind. He's promised a transition to cleaner fuels, but also pledged to right the wrongs in Indian country. He recently ordered more tribal consultation on the Arizona land swap. A federal appeals court is expected to rule on the tribe's challenge to the mine any day now. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Phoenix.
After more than a year of back and forth last month, the Metro Council approved legislation to test out the use of license plate readers to solve some violent crime in Nashville. It's been a hotly debated issue. Proponents hope the measure will curb crime, while those against fear the license plate readers will actually put our black and brown neighbors at greater risk. We'll get into those opposing perspectives in a few community members later on in the show. But first, let's get up to speed with the latest with WPLN Metro reporter Ambriel Kurzfeld. Ambriel, thank you for being here. Thank you. So for anyone listening who may not be familiar with the program, break it down for us. What will these license plate readers do? Yes, so the license plate readers will be placed on poles around the city. Um, We're not sure where they'll go at this exact moment, but that was, of course, a hot topic uh, for equity reasons. But as your car passes by, it takes pictures of your license plate. Um, And say a police officer um, or NDOT or in NDOT, by the way, is the local uh, transportation department. But if any of those groups uh, needed to get like they had a reasonable reason to go look at that data, then they can go and review uh, the tape for whatever reason that they're looking for. Not whatever reason. Sorry, that is super broad. But no, it's more so focused on investigating and prosecuting felonies and detecting traffic and parking violations, those kind of things. So who are the lawmakers behind this? Yes. So um, this originally started out as something that was supposed to be geared towards stopping drag racing. Um, when that was Councilmember Stiles in Southeast area that proposed that idea. But then Councilmember Johnston, um, you know, did her own research and realized that it actually isn't effective for drag racing. So the uh, bill got changed over time to be her bill specifically was a lot broader, uh, which is how we have what we with the law we have today. Um, but then there were all pe- also people like Councilmember Dave Rosenberg, who was very against expanding license plate readers. Um, and so it, initially he wanted to keep it really narrow um, to the disliking of the police office, the police officers. Um, but over time, he realized that the council was in support of using the tool or at least figuring out how it could work with us. So who is going to have access to the data that's collected from these license plate readers? Yes. Yeah, so um, it's a very specific le- list as far as like police officers or, um, you know, the DA or public defenders. But they do have to put in a request to be able to look at the information and it has to be an hour before so so they do have safety precautions they can't just say oh we think something suspicious is going on they have to uh, have a reasonable reason an hour before to look at the data and there's going to be a log that's kept of that so you've been covering this story for over a year right mm-hmm. what have you gained in in what what insights have you gained from covering this um i think i've just been interested in like I guess, to what extent we listen to community residents. I mean, I think the biggest theme that I heard through this whole thing is just like the trust in the government and police um, and also just like who has power to what, uh, you know, and to what degree you have power. Because I know at a certain point, Councilmember Johnson was like, hey, we've been talking about this for too long. We need to get the show on the road. Um, and, and, And obviously you have to do that in order to like make progress and get something going. But I think that a lot of the concerns um, and the long list of organizations that were against it, um, it showed to me a lot of like who has power in the city. What were some of the concerns of these organization members? Yes, a lot of them were concerned that it would um, like harm the civil liberties of black and brown communities. Um, and, And a lot of that both comes in like where we place the license plate readers, Um, you know, on one hand, Councilmember Johnson, who whose law passed, was like, well, if we put them all in Green Hills, for example, then y'all are going to say, oh, they always get all the stuff. Uh, but if we put it all in black neighborhoods, then we would have the opposite um, you know, reaction. So, um, yeah, that's been very interesting. 
Okay, so you spent time in the Haynes Park community where the Neighborhood Association raised funds on their own to install a pair of licensed plate readers. Mm -hmm. Let's hear a little bit from a conversation you had with Al Baston, who is a resident there. All of us try to get together. We try to look out for each other. And we try to do that now, at least on this street that I live on. Most of us try to look out for each other. We have a few that, you know, is the new generation, so we just have to fight that one. And what do you mean, uh, look after each other? Like, what does that look like? We or? watch out. We, if, if one of us go out of town, we can tell them, and they'll help look out, look out for your house. Uh, we try to help each other in any kind of way. If they need help, I help them. That was a clip that you heard from Al Batson. So it sounds like there's a strong sense of neighborhood, fe- neighborly feeling there. People are in community. How did that show up in your reporting on these new cameras? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. When I initially heard about this um, happening in Haynes Park, a lot of conversation from council members would be like, oh, yeah, black people do want this. Like, look at this neighborhood. And then we would hear organizers say the exact opposite. Uh, So I reached out to Gina Coleman, um, who's one of the community leaders. And so she just honestly, like, took me around walking in the neighborhood and we were able to meet a couple people. Um, And honestly, looking through, like, newspaper clippings, I was able to see, like, how much the neighborhood had changed. Like, it used to be... Um, black people that had a certain level of class that were buying in this neighborhood. And now it's changed. Like there are more white residents, which I was able to meet. Um, and they seem to kind of take a little bit of a backseat understanding like that this is a historically black neighborhood, but also there's a halfway house, there are renters. So it's quite a mix of who's there and um, what their opinions are. And, and, um, and, and to, from what I was able to report, it was a lot of the people that I talked to were homeowners. Um, so if I was to do it again, I wish I would have been able to talk to people um, that maybe we're not and, and get their sense of things. We're actually going to hear from Gina Coleman a little bit after the break. But so, you know, Embryo, you have to leave us here in a minute. But before you go, I want to introduce our next guest, who is a co-sponsor for the measure. Jennifer Gamble is the Metro Council City Metro Council member for District 3. Councilwoman Gamble, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. And thank you for having me today. So, Embryo, before you leave us, do you have any questions for the Councilwoman? Yes. Hey, Councilmember Gamble. Um, Good morning. Good afternoon. (laughs) I know. I don't even know what time it is. Um, The question I just had is, I mean, obviously, when um, the police department and the police chief were talking about license plate readers, one thing I've just been curious about is like what other tools the city uh, plans to put in place to curb violence. Um, Since we know that, of course, putting funding towards housing and child care and mental health resources, all of those things help to reduce crime. So uh, that's the thing I'm going to throw out there. Yes, thank you for that question. And there are actually several, uh, you're right, there's no one silver bullet. There's a multi-pronged approach going on now to help reduce and solve crimes in our city. You may be aware of the uh, mental co-op response program that started last year where Mm -hmm. we have uh, mental health professionals uh, responding with MMPD officers on calls that uh, could be related to a mental health crisis. Uh, That program started out as a pilot in just a couple of precincts. It's been expanded recently to additional precincts. In addition, the MMPD has increased or or maybe changed their hours uh, to have officers on 10-hour shifts in order to uh, better have transition in between uh, the peak crime hours, particularly in the early morning hours and uh, late at night. And so those are just two examples of other 
programs or, or techniques and measures that uh, the city and MMPD are taking to uh, help reduce crime in our city. And you may remember uh, two years ago, uh, the um, cameras, the um, the personal body cameras that the police wear was something that the community really felt uh, would help um, help solve crimes, deter crimes, but also address uh, discrimination uh, that has been historically experienced by our Black, Brown, and immigrant communities. And, and that was something that was important to the Metro Council as well to uh, to support and to fund. And we did get those body cameras. Those uh, cameras have been in operation for two years now and has, have been helpful in um, addressing those concerns of discrimination and also helping in, in solve crime in our city. You want to respond, Ambria? Yeah, I guess um, I know that, of course, you were in on a lot of the conversations where we heard from community members as well as council members. Um, and even when the law passed last month, uh, council member Sandra Sepulveda stood up and uh, basically told everyone to take note of like all of the people of color organiz run organizations that were opposed to this or had uh, questions that maybe that were still lingering. Um, I guess I am just curious as to like what you think the city should be doing in order to create trust if uh, there was so much hesitation still, even when the law passed? Yeah, I think transparency and communication is very important. Uh, you, you may be aware that we had several uh, community meetings, at least five uh, community meetings that were announced that the council uh, uh, spearheaded, and then council members had their own individual community meetings. But within those community meetings, we heard concerns from community groups and others about how this technology could be used to to miss could be misused rather to track and unfairly target black and brown and immigrant communities, uh, which I said earlier have been historically targeted and discriminated against by law enforcement. And and out of those discussions, we we heard about um, the need to have measures in place to. Uh, to avoid or to to create more transparent trans transparency and restrictions on how the tool, the license plate reader tool, would be used to safeguard um, data, to safeguard people's personal privacy and literacy, uh, 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 private liberties, and also how it how it could be shared and stored and and measures for accountability for misuse. So we we listened to those concerns over a fifteen month period. We uh, attempted, and I think we did address many of those concerns in the bill revisions and amendments. I, I submitted two amendments myself to address those concerns. And I think having this program as a six month pilot program uh, to provide an opportunity to, to see if those measures and, and restrictions and the transparency that has been put in place uh, as a part of the policy for operating this tool, it, it is uh, useful and successful in, in addressing those concerns. And if not, uh, there is an opportunity to discontinue the program. So I, I think, and I, and I recognize and appreciate all of the uh, communication and, and the concerns that have been expressed by the community and the community groups. As I said, I believe we address many of those concerns in the bill and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation uh, during this uh, the, the pilot period 
to um, address any other concerns or address any misuse that may could be found. That's Metro Councilwoman Jennifer Gamble of District Three. I want to thank Ambriel Crutchfeld, Metro reporter for WPLN. Ambriel, thank you so much for coming in and your reporting on this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This, listen. Just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh, with the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. The break room inside of Taste of Rondo Bar and Grill overlooks a well-traveled portion of Interstate 94. Just imagine our businesses again. Robin Hickman Winfield feels at home here. The walls of the restaurant are lined with black and white photos depicting past generations of black families enjoying life in Rondo. Pictures of members of her own family also adorn the menu. This is my father, Bobby Hickman, and my uncle, his uncle, Gordon Parks. Robin and her husband, Stephen Winfield, are spreading the word anywhere they can about an idea called the Land Bridge, meant to reconnect the vibrant Rondo community that was split in two by the construction of I-94 in the 50s and 60s. People were just close and cared about each other. The Winfield name would go on to become a big part of St. Paul baseball history as Stephen and his brother Dave grew up to play professionally. And some of Stephen's earliest memories involved practice around the highway construction. All down at the playground and all we know, they're digging a big hole down there. We didn't know what that was about. He remembers hearing the term urban renewal, understanding it meant removing old stuff to make room for something new. That's one of my fondest memories of wondering, what is this hole there? digging here. Built between 1956 and 1968, the new east-to-west interstate highway was intended to connect people all over the region. But for Stevens family and many other black families, it meant their homes were chosen to be demolished by the government to make room for I-94. You know, 1009 care, we lived upstairs in a duplex there. Stephen remembers his mother looking for a new place to live, cleaning the house before they were displaced. We didn't have a lot per se but everybody in the area, everybody in the community felt close to each other. You know, Named for an early settler, Rondo Avenue was the heart of the largest black community in St. Paul from the 1930s through the 1950s. The surrounding neighborhood stretched into today's Summit University neighborhood and north to University Avenue. Much of Rondo was wiped out as the highway emerged. It's estimated around 1,000 homes and businesses were closed or torn down. There are a lot of stories. Those effects linger today, Robin says, because families lost generational wealth and opportunities. Ownership of Rondo and the resurgence. Now, as MnDOT prepares to make needed upgrades to the aging highway, the state is considering upgrades that would repair and reduce further harm to residents along I-94, from Minneapolis to St. Paul, including Rondo residents. Now is the moment. We will not be in this moment again. 
Keith Baker says the descendants and current residents of Rondo should be at the center of planning the reconnection. He's the executive director of Reconnect Rondo, the advocacy organization that's been studying and planning the land bridge idea for more than five years. The land bridge would serve as a lid over the half-mile stretch of the I-94 corridor that cut Rondo in two. The group secured $6 million from the state last year to continue developing the idea. To generate the economic opportunities that stay within the community for wealth building. MnDOT Metro Deputy District Engineer Sheila Kalpi says the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in 2020 represented another moment to reflect and listen. It has really kind of pivoted from where we were in 2016 to where we are now. We listened to a lot of people. We learned a lot about that community well ahead of the funding. Calpi says MnDOT doesn't have funding for anything beyond the most needed repairs to maintain the infrastructure that already exists along the entire 15-mile stretch the project encompasses between the Twin Cities. Baker says the land bridge across the Rondo community would rely on a combination of public and private funds and could cost more than $450 million to complete. Baker says it's designed to ensure residents would have ownership in the ideas and businesses built on top of the land bridge. Housing benefit, open park space benefit, all of the amenities that we know improve quality of life. In the last month or so, Reconnect Rondo and MnDOT learned of another effort emerging from the Minneapolis nonprofit Our Streets, which aims to make cities more easily accessible to bikers and walkers. On a recent unseasonably cold evening, Alex Burns is out raising awareness about the Our Streets proposal. Burns, who is the transportation policy coordinator for the group, explained the project to two next-door neighbors living right next to I-94 who didn't know big changes were even being considered. My parents live, you know, out of the city. So how am I supposed to get there? Yeah. Right now it's a 15-minute drive. The Our Streets project is called Twin Cities Boulevard. It's a freeway to boulevard conversion meant to replace the entire stretch of freeway MnDOT's rethinking I-94 effort encompasses. Instead, there would be fewer driving lanes and a greater focus on public transit, crosswalks, and bike lanes. I'm in for this drawing right here. Next door. You like this Twin Cities Boulevard? Love love it. The idea was an instant hit. Not so many cars. Not so much noise. Not so many fumes. I like the basketball court. Mm -hmm. I like the seating area. The Twin Cities Boulevard would prioritize all of the residents living in the area who are often making shorter trips, while many drivers between suburbs could use alternatives like 694. Burns says this idea also focuses on communities along I-94 that experience demolition and displacement. I think a difference that we've tried to make clear is we feel like a land bridge over a reconstructed or expanded freeway that cements I-94's harms for another half century is an unacceptable outcome for this project. Keith Baker of Reconnect Rondo says Our Streets never tried to work with his organization ahead of releasing its plan. It fails to recognize the extraordinary time we're in post-George Floyd and the disparities that exist in the state of Minnesota. MnDOT says both ideas will be considered as alternatives throughout the coming months. MnDOT will continue collecting public input over the next several months with the goal of releasing plans for Rethinking I-94 late this summer. It's estimated 160,000 cars travel I-94 through the Twin Cities each day. Let me take my rightful place on reclaiming that which was stolen. As the Winfields overlook the highway from their restaurant table, they wonder how many of those travelers know the history of Rondo. I drive around 
you know, St. Paul and see representation of community utopias? Why can't we? She refers to the black utopia in the movie Black Panther. And, and I've talked and had folks laughing. If it's Rhonda Wakanda, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Wakanda forever. You know, why not? For the Winfields, their family stories are more than a window to the past. They're an education, a lesson for the future. Our children need to have that vision of possibilities. Nina Moini, NPR News. The Olympics got underway. Simone Biles was like, hey, I ain't okay. Take care of your mental space. Two years into the pandemic, concerns about COVID-19's impact on mental health continue to grow. We spoke with people across the country about their particular struggles and the work being done to help others suffering during the pandemic. Here is some of what they told us. My name is Jason Wu. I work in the Bay Area of California, and I am a private practice psychologist. One of my specialties is trauma, so a lot of trauma work has been done with a lot of my clients over this period of time. Um, and it's been kind of a blessing and a curse because we're really finally focusing on trauma, but then you also don't have the social support that's really important to healing trauma. My name is Shanae Curley. I live in Houston, Texas. I am a stay-at-home mom. I have three children, all in elementary school, and two of my kiddos have autism. We went on spring break and we were in San Antonio when they started shutting down cities. And I had a major, I had a major anxiety attack. I'm Andy Hutchinson. I'm a psychiatrist. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm supposed to know how to deal with this, how to navigate it, how to do the right things, how to meditate, how to run, how to take care of myself so that I don't experience depression. And yet there are times, even when you know all the things, that you may still struggle with depression, as I have. I think what was different was that I felt like after all this happened, like in Atlanta, with you know the really horrible tragedy that happened there, I just saw an influx of Asian clients in general. I guess it's like made aware of the fact that, yeah, mental health is a real thing. It's okay for Asian Americans to seek that out. It's There's a lot of cultural stigma with that, too. I ended up calling my therapist, and I was like, hey... I'm having a hard time. Like mid-March, after things had shut down, I was like, I really think that this is going to be a problem. She gave me some meditation strategies. And um, she said, now might be the time that we need a psychiatrist. So before COVID, I was sort of thriving. I was, I was teaching mindfulness groups and, um, and that switched online and kind of petered out. And my, my motivation to do that kind of went away. Um, I was exercising. I was gardening a lot. I was a, a voracious reader, so I, I ordered more books than I could I could get through just because I loved having books. And I noticed some of those things started dropping away. And I noticed I was sitting on the couch more. And I was finding myself sort of apathetic about all these things that I was passionate about. And, I, and, and it struck me. And I was like, what's going on? Like, have I just lost interest in everything? I've seen a lot of people who've dealt with depression, um, definitely out of like isolation, which kind of breeds a lot of that. Um, we're meant to be social. Uh, anxiety for sure. I mean, um, for a lot of clients that have had that have OCD, um, this whole pandemic has been really triggering for them. She gave me the contact information for a psychiatrist and I called her and I met with her virtually and um, and she was like, yeah, we're going to we're going to take some medicine for this. And then when this whole pandemic thing dies down, then you can, you know, you can, we can wean you off. And I was like, okay, that's great. Cause it should be over soon. Right. And so here we are two years in 
and a second <laughs> prescription for anxiety meds. I've had to invest in more money in sort of taking care of myself. I've reached out to my own psychiatrist to get the help that I need, to, the support that I need, and created sort of a team of supporters for myself. I've reached out to my friends and let them know I've been struggling at times. And we want to thank each one of you for sharing your stories with us. And now to focus on what can be done to address and improve mental health care in America, I spoke recently with Dr. Tom Insel. From 2002 to 2015, he served as director of the National Institute of Mental Health. He's the author of a new book, Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Dr. Tom Insel, welcome to the News Hour. You've been keeping a close eye on the state of people's mental health during this entire pandemic. So hearing that people are struggling right now doesn't come as a surprise, does it? It's hardly a surprise. This has been a tough couple of years for the nation, for the world. And you see it most in people who might have been struggling even before the pandemic. To have a mental health crisis is not new. It was there in 2019 but it's more apparent. And I think there's just a lot more despair uh, going into 2022 and now starting the third year of this very difficult time. And you wrote this book in large part because you are openly alarmed at the fact that this country, in your view, is so poorly equipped to deal with depression, anxiety, uh, all forms of mental illness. Um, not just, as you said, not just during the pandemic, but but all the time right now. Well, you know, when I started my career, I think we were doing a better job. I wouldn't say that about very many areas of medicine, but in mental health, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, we had a broad community-based support system. We had a safety net. We had a lot of services available, particularly for people who had the most serious forms of mental illness schizophrenia, bipolar illness, severe depression. We were prepared and we were there to serve. In the words of President Kennedy, they need no longer be alien to our affections. We've lost that and we've lost that over many decades and we've lost it in a way which means that too often people with serious mental illness end up in the criminal justice system and not the healthcare system. That's unacceptable. And it's not as if people haven't been paying attention to this. And it, as we point out, you yourself, uh, you were leading the country's uh, uh, institute, the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, for what, 13 years? Um, from what, 2002 to 2015? Um, you surely were looking at these problems then. We were, but you know, the National Institute of Mental Health does a spectacular job of research. Uh, and they go after the science of mental health. The problem here, the problem of incarceration, of homelessness, of of early mortality for people with serious mental illness, that's actually not so much a scientific problem. And that was the discovery of my book. You know, the book I was trying to figure out, why was so much progress in science? Have we seen increases in suicide, increases in overdose deaths, increases in morbidity and mortality? for people with mental illness. And the answer is not in the science. It's not even in the care system. It's in, it's in the lack of a safety net. It's in this, the ways in which we do not provide for those people who can't provide for themselves. And that's the big tragedy because we know what to do. We can help people with these illnesses. We have good treatments. We don't need to research that part. 
but we need to implement the sorts of treatments that NIMH and others have developed so that people can recover. And they can if we do this right, but we're not doing it right. And what does that mean to implement it? I mean, what exactly are some of the things that, that in your view, need to happen now? Well, to some extent, you have to fix a broken healthcare system. And that means ending a lot of the fragmentation, the way that people are paid for what I call a, a crisis-driven sick care system, not for a healthcare system. So changing the incentives in our care system. But you know, the thing that I think I learned most in working on this book was if we really care about mental health, it's about more than mental health care. We have to think beyond health care. We have to think about what I call the three Ps, people, place, and purpose, how we help people with these disorders to actually build a life. That's not about which medication you're on or what psychotherapy you're getting. It's about that, of course, that you need the medical care, but you also need, you need the social supports. You need a safe place to recover. You, you need actually all of those services that give you something to live for. We aren't doing that. At least we're not doing that at scale. We're doing that in places. We need to do that far better as a nation if we want to see people with mental illness truly recover. And for people who are watching uh, Tom Insull who say, okay, I'd like to help in some way, what can individuals, is there anything individuals can do? Well, there's a lot you can do. I mean, the part of what we need to do is to create the kind of community that's been missing. And, and I will have to say that this involves all of us. It's not just about those people who have schizophrenia or bipolar illness. It's about all of us. It's a measure of who we are. We once did this. We ha used to have the kind of social fabric and the social services and the safety net that we've allowed to really get shredded. So part of what I'm talking about is, is political action. And I think we need a social movement for mental health, which is what I'm trying to start with this book, very much the way that Vice President Gore tried to start the movement for climate with inconvenient truth. This is the inconvenient truth for the mental health crisis. Dr. Tom Insull, the book is Healing, uh, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Thank you very much. Powers, activate! March is Women's History Month, and to mark the occasion, Amna Nawaz introduces us to a pair of modern-day history makers, the Blackstock Sisters. They are physicians who have dedicated themselves to working at the intersection of medicine, health equity, and systemic racism. This story is part of our ongoing series, Race Matters. So this is the neighborhood you grew up in. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is, this is, this is the only house we ever lived in. For Uche and Oni Blackstock, this is where it all began. We have so many memories from here with our family. Good memories. Yeah. Their family home in Brooklyn, New York. So it's this one right here. Yeah. Right? Yep. That's it. Exactly. It Your folks bought this place right before you were born? I think for, for both of our parents, it was very important that we grew up in a house. And I would say it was, it was a house of love. That love from Father Earl and Mother Dale came with high expectations and a sense of duty to those in need. Uche became an emergency room physician. Oni, a primary care physician specializing in HIV. Both doctors lived and saw firsthand the deep racial inequities in America's healthcare system. And both went on to found their own health equity firms to close those gaps. 
gaps laid bare over the last two years as the pandemic tore through the black and brown communities the sisters served. I, I'm scared. I am, I'm scared that these communities are going to be absolutely ravaged um, and devastated by COVID-19. We need to do a much better job starting from, from kindergarten, um, from grade school, getting young black children and other children of color really interested in medicine and also providing them with the resources and support they need to get through because it's such a, a long, you know, it's a long journey, right? Everything that Oni is saying is essentially linked to systemic racism. I mean, I think that's the reason why we haven't seen you know, an increase in the number of black physicians and why we continue to see such high black maternal mortality rates and black infant mortality rates and black men have the shortest life expectancy. Wow, hey, yo, drama, hold up, son. hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Everything that Oni is saying is essentially linked to systemic racism. I mean, I think that's the reason why we haven't seen, you know, an increase in the number of black physicians and why we continue to see such high black maternal mortality rates and black infant mortality rates and black men have the shortest life expectancy. We really have to have a more holistic uh, approach to how we're addressing racial health inequities. We need not just us doing the work, we need everyone to, on board to doing the work. Uh, we need the resources and the time. And we know that also that it's um, a marathon and not a sprint. It's a marathon you guys are running together. Yes. yes, definitely. Their roots, both in the neighborhood and in this work, run deep. A childhood spent poring over books with their mother at the Brooklyn Central Library and running by her side through yeah. Prospect Park. I ran my first race here when I was six years old with my mother, who she started running, I think, during medical school or residency. A Harvard-trained physician, Dr. Dale Gloria Blackstock, paved the way for her daughters. She's a little black girl who grew up in Brooklyn um, on public assistance, you know, by a single mom. You know, she was raised along with her, her five siblings. And I think the world probably didn't expect a lot from her, um, but she knew that she could accomplish um, a great deal and nothing, nothing stopped her. She pushed her girls to push themselves. Violin lessons by the age of three, trailing her to clinics and meetings. The three of them joined at the hip. The, the way that our mom raised us was that we would always be together. And so we, we grew up together, we played together, we went to school together, took violin lessons together, um, you know, learned how to ride a bike together. We were inseparable for most of our lives. And it's almost like our mom sort of knew that she wouldn't be here for a long time. And so she, she left us with one another. Dale Blackstock was diagnosed with leukemia at 46. She died less than a year later. The girls were just 19, sophomores at Harvard. We found a letter that she um, wrote to us under her, her mattress. Um, and in the letter, she says, you know, take care of your dad, take care of each other take care of your aunt and your uncles, and go on to medical school. <laughs> like That was one thing she was like, you are going to medical school. So, you know, it was our dream, but I think it was also, you know, her dream. Uche and Oni graduated from Harvard Medical School, just like their mom, and returned home to Brooklyn, just like their mom. She would say, look at my babies. I am so proud of them. And, you know, that's all I think ultimately want to do. We want to make her proud. So I hope we are making her proud. Yeah, she'd be incredibly proud of us. She'd be incredibly proud. 
As a black woman graduating medical school in 1976 and then stepping into this professional field, there were probably a lot of barriers she had to kick down to get where she got. Mm -hmm. And as you both followed in her footsteps, do you think all those barriers were gone for you coming up after her? I'm, I'm going to say that many more barriers should have fallen since our mom graduated from medical school. Only about 6% of physicians are black, 3% um, are black women, so we still are quite rare and we have to think about why is that the case, mm -hmm. right? When we, when we know that we are very able and competent to do this work and so it's tremendous amount of work needs to be done. I think if our mother were still here, um, I think she would very much agree and still be, still be working on all of the same efforts that we are. Now mothers themselves, Uche and Oni carry Dale's lessons and her sense of mission with them every day. We only had her for 19 years, but she was warm, she was affectionate, and she was loving. And uh, she made us believe that we could do anything. When, when she died, I almost felt like I, I was floating and I didn't have yeah. any roots. Yeah. Yeah. Because the person who had loved me, nourished me, supported me for all those years was no longer here. And, and, and it almost felt like that love had been lost. But you know, now I realize it's very much, very much still there. And when people meet us, they're meeting her. They're, they're meeting all of the hard work that she put into us. For the PBS NewsHour in Brooklyn, New York, I'm Amna Nawaz. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. SDSU philosophy professor Angelo Corlett was reassigned by the university administration after using racial slurs in class. The tenured professor was teaching a class he'd been teaching for years on race, language, and ethics. The incident was hurtful to many students and has raised questions about academic free speech, what's unacceptable, and the overall experience of being black on SDSU's campus. Dr. Adisa Al-Kabalan is chair and associate professor of Africana Studies at SDSU and also a university senator. Professor Al-Kabalan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what have students told you happened in the classroom with Professor Corlett? Well, what they've shared with me is that it started off as a discussion about uh, language and racism and uh, racial slurs, but it would eventually descend into uh, really a situation where the professor was you know, just irresponsibly throwing the word around as a way uh, to really intimidate and inflame and agitate students. Just to be clear, what word was he throwing around? You don't have to say it, but... Uh, Right. He was throwing around uh, the N-word. Um, you know, is this something students have complained about before? Uh, apparently it is. And I only recently learned of this because as professors, we don't really know what other professors are doing in, in their classroom. So I just recently heard uh, from students uh, that there's been a very, very long uh, history uh, of using that word, but not just using the word, uh, but 
complaints from students uh, as well. So this is not uh, new in terms of uh, the, the issues that students have had uh, with Professor Corlett uh, and that word. And students have been reluctant to speak out about this particular incident. Why is that? Well, a lot of them are not comfortable with, you know, sharing any information or stepping forward out of fear of retribution uh, from the university, Uh, fairly or unfairly, but that's uh, how many of them feel. And we have to understand that, you know, these are young people who did not come to San Diego State University and in general don't come to college uh, to be revolutionaries. You know, they come to they come to learn. You know, they come, you know, as as kids, as a lot of us, you know, see them. Uh, but you know, this is not the type of thing that they uh, hope for and expect to experience in college. What can you tell me about the nature of Professor Corlett's class? And what can you tell me about him? You all have known each other for two decades. Yes, we have known each other uh, for quite some time. And uh, what I can say is that you know, his, many of his courses deal with issues of race, uh, social justice. Uh, he talks uh, about uh, reparations. So, you know, in a general sense, I've, you know, always understood that about, you know, his, his focus, his academic focus. Uh, but only recently, uh, again, ha- have I learned uh, about the interaction that he's had with students for Uh, a a number of years. Uh, One of the things that he often, you know, talks about, or I should say one of the things that students uh, have been coming forward and talking about is that he intentionally uh, tries to agitate uh, the students. And he, uh, according to them, he bullies them and he puts in his, you know, syllabus, you know, instructions for them not to share uh, his syllabus uh, or uh, they would, you know, my words, not necessarily theirs, I'm paraphrasing uh, what they said, but if they share his syllabus, you know, they will, you know, feel his wrath. Uh, So that's the kind of relationship uh, I am now beginning to understand that he has with his students. Mm. And, you know, if this is a class on racism, language and ethics, where do you think Professor Corlett went wrong in his teaching? Well, I think he went wrong uh, when he stopped talking about, you know, the N-word uh, in, an, in an academic context. You know, in, in other words, when you're talking about race, racism, you know, racial epithets, you know, personally, I understand the use of that word in context. But I think the lesson went awry or the lesson effectively ended when he began to throw the word around uh, because he could. You know, because he told his class, he told his students that uh, he could use that word. So uh, according to them, he used it, you know, more than 40 times again, because he could. And he told the students uh, that the only way that he could be fired was if he raped or murdered a student. You know, so at that point, the, la- the lesson was effectively over and something else was happening. And this isn't the only incident Black students in particular have had to deal with on campus. What's the climate been like and for how long? Well, the climate currently 
is probably the racial climate is probably the worst now that I've seen in my 20 years at San Diego State. Uh, but I will say that, you know, there's often been uh, hostility uh, for black students uh, and really faculty and staff as well uh, at San Diego State. So there is a, a history uh, of anti-blackness at SDSU. But I think at this moment, uh, it's kind of reaching its its boiling point. What's made the climate uh, so bad? What are students experiencing and what are our staff and faculty experiencing? Well, certainly, you know, as far as students are concerned, you know, it's almost a it's a regular experience for their classmates uh, and others to uh, call them the N-word. Uh, only a few years ago was the the newly opened Black Resource Center um, vandalized uh, and folks were hurling the N-word at students coming in and out of the Black Resource Center. Uh, or where we talk about when the library and the university rejected the John Coltrane Memorial Black Music Archive without any discussion uh, with with faculty in general, uh, but certainly not with Africana Studies or the Black uh, Resource Center, or even considering uh, how Black students would feel about the university inexplicably rejecting uh, this music that represents uh, their culture. Uh, so there are just a number of different, you know, issues uh, right now uh, that kind of, you know, typifies the uh, Africana experience at San Diego State University. And, and why did you want to share your thoughts about this? Well, our students are, are hurting. And by extension, I'm hurting. You know, I've seen, I see the impact that the environment is having on our students right now. I, I was in a meeting recently uh, with Black students, uh, and they were literally crying. You know, they, they're dealing with, uh, and, and many of us are, I mean, not just our students, but, you know, the focus I want to be on our students are dealing with this racial battle fatigue. And as I mentioned before, they didn't come to San Diego State, and we don't come to college to have those experiences, but unfortunately, those are the experiences that we've been having. So that's why I'm speaking out about it. Um, you know, an organization called FIRE, has gotten involved with this particular incident with Professor Corlett. They say in defense of academic free speech, what's your perspective on that organization and why they've become involved in this issue and others at SDSU? So FIRE, they focused uh, initially on the land acknowledgement. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that this land acknowledgement is about uh, uh, a, a, a people of color. And a university that was making an attempt to honor the culture and traditions and existence uh, of indigenous people, particularly the Kumeyaay, on, on our campus. But because, you know, FIRE as an organization and those who support them, they don't really see us. They don't see indigenous students. They don't see, you know, black students. So the impact of their actions on you know, black and other students 
of color is just simply not a concern of theirs, but rather, you know, this idea, this so-called freedom uh, of speech. So this organization has demonstrated uh, what it values and it does not value human beings. You know, the university sent us a statement about this incident with Professor Corlett, uh, saying, in short, the university holds in highest regards all protections for academic freedom. After reviewing multiple complaints from students, the university considered the severity of the situation and the support needed for our students and reassigned the professor. What do you think of SDSU's response to all of this and its decision to reassign Dr. Corlett rather than something more severe? Well, I support the university's decision with regard to President, uh, I'm sorry, to Professor Corlett. Uh, But one of the things that I am concerned about is that Corlett is really symptomatic of a larger problem at San Diego State. So on so many levels, it's easy to focus on, you know, one professor uh, who is problematic or, you know, behaving badly in the classroom, uh, as opposed to dealing with some of the more systemic cultural deficiencies uh, of the university. I've been speaking with SDSU Associate Professor and Chair of Africana Studies, Adisa Alkabalon. Professor Alkabalon, thank you for joining us. You're welcome and thank you. More than 30 historically black colleges and universities have received bomb threats in the last three months. They've disrupted campus life and taxed students' mental health as well as school security resources. The White House announced today that schools that recently experienced a bomb threat will be eligible for federal grant money. Joining us to discuss the initiative is Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Hello. Hello. First, just that number. There were bomb threats at more than 30 schools in the course of a few months. It is, frankly, alarming. What are you hearing from leaders at these colleges about the toll that these threats are having on students? You know, we've had conversations with over 40 leaders of HBCUs and we talk to students directly. And, you know, it's it's tough enough to reopen and and go to school during a pandemic and to have this added on, it it increased the level of anxiety and apprehension, you know, and and they're feeling it. The students are definitely feeling it and the college presidents are also feeling it on their campuses. In a statement, the White House said these threats are reminiscent of attempts in the civil rights era to intimidate black Americans. I found that particularly striking. You know, it's true. Let's call it what it is. Let's call it what it is. Many of these threats came during Black History Month. But you know what? It's just going to make our results stronger to support our HBCUs, to stand behind our students uh, in the face of these threats. Let's talk a bit about these grants. They range from $50,000 to $150,000 per school, and they are specifically to help restore what is called a safe environment conducive to learning. Secretary Cardona, what exactly can these funds be used for, and how will you all determine which schools are eligible and how much money they're eligible for? Right. You know, the intent here is to make sure that they feel they can have support and financial support for some of the programs that they need, you know, whether it's cameras or mental health supports for our students who are frustrated or struggling with these threats. Uh, Conversations between the Department of Education who oversee Project Serve and the institutions would take place to determine the amounts and how the money is going to be spent. 
We know, and as you mentioned, uh, historically black colleges have been subject to centuries of inequities. There are these historic disparities in funding and investment. We know that President Biden has done some important things for HBCUs to date. And these these universities are a launchpad for so many black people in this country across public life. I am curious what more the education department can do to support them. You know, you're absolutely correct. And I think it's important to put numbers behind this, right? 17% of bachelor's degrees awarded to African-Americans are from HBCUs, yet they only make up 3% of our universities uh, across the country. 25% of our black STEM graduates come from HBCUs. So when the president took office, he made it very clear that uh, supporting HBCUs is going to be a priority. Uh, Since day one, the Biden-Harris administration made historic investments, $5.8 billion uh, from the American Rescue Plan. And, you know, in the packages that we put forward, there's also funding for these HBCUs, which, as you mentioned, have been historically underfunded. Um, and it's really important that we acknowledge across the country that, that they're punching above their weight, and they have been. And we need to make sure that we're uh, leveling the funding so that they're getting the support that other colleges have received. Mm, okay. One last question here. Shifting topics to student loans, I have to ask, is the student loan repayment moratorium, will that be extended again into 2023? You know, I don't have any information now, but I will tell you that we're having conversations da- daily about uh, how to best support our borrowers and make sure that they have a, uh, the support that they need to resume. And, um, you know, as information comes out, we'll be clear to communicate with them right away. That is Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Thanks so much for taking some time. All right. Thank you. Who are you? I am the architect. For the first time ever, a black architect has been avoided a Pritzker Prize. That is the most prestigious honor in the field. NPR's Netta Ulibi has more. The winner, DeBeto Francis Carre, born in Burkina Faso and based in Berlin, reenacted for me what it was like to get the call telling him that he'd won. Hey, what? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? What are you telling me, girl? Carre, over Zoom, was wearing a white-collared shirt and a slightly flabbergasted grin. He was speaking from the capital of Benin, where he's in the middle of designing a parliamentary building. Gray grew up in a tiny West African village where his father was the chief. There was no school, and my father wanted me to learn how to read and write. His father, who could not read, wanted his son to be able to answer the letters that came from the government. So Kare was sent, at age seven, hundreds of miles away to a sweltering classroom crowded with other children. It was very hot. How can I say, like in the oven, you know? For the first time, Corey thought, I could design a better place for kids to learn. He got a scholarship to study carpentry in Germany. He went to night school there and eventually got another scholarship to study architecture. Corey was still a student when he went back to his village to build a school. It's this incredible clay brick, very simple structure with this gently arching floating roof. That's Carolina Miranda, who covers art and urban design for the Los Angeles Times. She says that first building won the prestigious Aga Khan Award. The attention helped Kare establish his own firm. But Kare was not on most people's Pritzker radar. The scuttlebutt had been that it was probably David Ajay. Sir David Ajay, probably the best-known Black architect, celebrated for buildings like the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. This pick, says Miranda, reflects a larger Pritzker trend away from splashy architects and attention-grabbing buildings. This is not Instagram architecture. This is architecture designed to live in. Sustainable, local, useful. For the school, Kare mixed local clay with cement. 
The community, supportive but unskilled, pounded the floors and sanded them to an incredible sheen. The architect, Debato Francis Carre, draws not just on African materials, but African ideas about space and form. He wants Benin's new National Assembly building to evoke a traditional experience. You're sitting like under a canopy of a giant tree. You know, the council tree, the place where you meet, the place where you talk about life, where you talk about politics, where you make major decisions, and embedding that form in his building design. Form and values coming together, says Carolina Miranda. The Pritzker Committee said in its citation that Debato Francis Carre reminds a world in crisis of what has been and what needs to continue in architectural practice, community, compassion, beauty, and pride. Neto Ulibi. NPR News. I love niggas. I love niggas. I love niggas. Police officer and firefighter who's accused of going on a racist tirade. Today, Jay Rankin faced a judge and we were the only ones in court. Channel 3's Dennis Valera is live in Old Saybrook tonight. And Dennis, we learned Rankin has been investigated for multiple incidents, right? Yes, Aaron, both cases happening here in Old Saybrook, but the one happening here at the fire department, that's the one that led to his charge. Police documents show the witness in this incident also saw another case of possible racial insensitivity. I'm asking for the court's indulgence to briefly put some things on the record because it's our only chance to respond. With his client standing silently next to him, attorney Christopher Morano reminded the court of Jay Rankin's long record of public service. He's received approximately a dozen commendations. He's been police officer of the year, at least once, if not twice. He's saved people's lives at least four times. On September 14th, Rankin is accused of yelling a racial slur at a man as he pulled into the old Saybrook Fire Department. According to the arrest warrant, the man told police that Rankin called him the N-word three times. Other documents show Rankin admitted to calling the man a low-life freeloader and to go get a job. But Rankin says at no time did he use any racial slurs. Police documents say a second incident happened a week later at the restaurant The Monkey Farm. There, a man claims a woman he was dating introduced him to Rankin, who was very intoxicated and proceeded to mock her for being white and dating a black guy. This did not lead to any charges. During the investigation into the fire department incident, police documents show the witness detail another incident with Rankin, saying in the past year, Rankin walked over and began yelling at a black male truck driver at Walmart. The witness continued on to describe this as totally unacceptable and a complete embarrassment to the old Saybrook Fire Department. Murano worries with all this out there, his client may lose his fair shot down the line. Someday this may very well be po- go before a jury. And my concern is we do not want a jury that is tainted by the pretrial publicity involved in this case. A pretrial hearing has been set for April 28th. Christopher Morano says he plans to review all police reports and evidence against his client until then. Live here in Old Saybrook, Dennis Valera, Channel 3, Eyewitness News. I'm talking fear, fear losing creativity. I'm talking fear, fear missing out on you and me. I'm talking fear, fear losing loyalty for pride. Because my DNA won't let me involve in the light of God. I'm talking fear. Fear that my humbleness is gone, I'm talking fear. Fear that love ain't living here no more, I'm talking fear. Fear that is wickedness or weakness. Fear, whatever it is, both is distinctive. Fear led a young couple in West Allis to send their infant daughter to stay with family members. Yeah, this after they say they've become targets of hate crimes on their block. CBS 58's Michelle Fiore joining us live from the West Allis Police Station tonight. Michelle. 
Yeah, Jessup and Natalie, this young couple has been dealing with slashed tires and racial slurs for months. And now the West Dallas Police Department confirms there is an open and active investigation here. Tanathia Addison and her fiance, Reginald Wilkerson, moved on to Mitchell Street a year ago. And then I gave birth like a week later and everything. And I noticed it was very family oriented. Everyone's walking their dogs, you know, taking their kids out. And uh, it was great. Addison describes the block as friendly, but less than a year later, a sudden change. Our tires got slashed the first time. We left a note in the windshield pretty much saying, get out of the neighborhood. Not going to use the words that they used. This is one of the shocking notes that accompanied the vandalism, the N-word in all caps. It's hard to, hard to fathom, you know, because we, I feel like we came so long, so far. Since the first tire slashing, the couple says they woke up to find similar damages five more times and more racially charged notes. Always on the same two tires. It's never on that side. It's never anything like that. Wilkerson and Addison say in all, it's one busted driver's side window and a total of seven slashed tires. They're out of pocket, well over $1,500. Oh, we replaced the tires, correct. And then they came back and did yep, again. came back again. We put brand new tires on the first time. Put brand new tires on, they slashed them, and then we just kept putting on tires. In addition to the financial toll, the emotional toll is even worse. Out of caution, they've sent their baby girl to stay with family members, knowing this person or persons are still out there. I think that's the mother's, especially like a new mom, for me, that's my worst fear. I can't even think about it right now. You can be any race, it doesn't matter. You should be able to live where you want to live. There are now cameras outside the home on Mitchell Street, and they're hoping that police have enough on there to make an arrest and help them restore their sense of peace. Reporting live in West Dallas, I'm Michelle Fiore, CBS 58 News. I'm talking fear, fear losing creativity. I'm talking fear, fear missing out on you and me. I'm talking fear, fear losing loyalty for pride because my DNA won't let me involve in the light of God. I'm talking fear. In continuing coverage of this controversy tonight, American River College released one of the threatening messages directed at President Dixon. After consulting with community leaders, including the Sacramento NAACP, we have decided to share portions of the audio with you tonight because, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. We are shining a light tonight on a very ugly and racist reality that still exists in our community even today in spite of so much progress. A warning, this video is very disturbing. We want the blacks out of American River College. I don't recall a being our faculty. Isn't what this, what this is? A on a gun? Isn't that what you are? A in the wrong neighborhood? Isn't that what you are? Melanie Dixon is a disrespectful Get out of my faculty! And you know, sadly, she does not stop there. Just as she's about to hang up after using the N-word and other words we just cannot say on TV multiple times, then comes the threat of violence. Again, the suspect in this case was arrested Tuesday night for violating a temporary restraining order filed after the college says she left hundreds of harassing messages similar to the one you just heard. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Get that out of this town before shoot you. Again, the suspect in this case was arrested Tuesday night for violating a temporary restraining order filed after the college says she left hundreds of harassing messages similar to the one you just heard. Our thoughts are with President Dixon and the entire ARC community during this difficult time. We pledge to provide continuing coverage as we learn more about this investigation. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot it of people say from it's China. racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. The White House says President Biden has warned China of the consequences if it gives support to Russia in its war against Ukraine. Mr Biden and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, discussed the war in a conversation lasting almost two hours, their first since the Russian invasion began. A White House spokeswoman, Jen Psaki, outlined why the US feared that China could give Russia military help. If you look at the last couple of weeks, you can see that uh, they abstained from a vote in the UN Security Council. They had put out a comment during the uh, Munich Security Conference uh, defending the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. But they also echoed some of the conspiracy theories about uh, chemical weapons and U.S. and Ukrainian intentions. So for any country, it's a question of where uh, you want to be as the history books are written. I heard more about the conversation between Mr. Biden and his Chinese counterpart from the BBC's Nomia Iqbal in Washington. This was an opportunity for President Biden to find out where China stands in the conflict. So the US has basically made clear the stakes of the conversation. They basically are saying, China, you need to pick a side and you need to be on the right side of history, which is with the West. And that is a pretty tall order given that China's President Xi Jinping is very close to Russia's President Vladimir Putin. He doesn't even use the word invasion to describe what's happening. Now, we know that after this conversation, a senior official said that Mr. Biden was, and I'll use the words that he used, direct, substantive and detailed with Mr. Xi and warned of implications and consequences if China tried to help Russia get around the sanctions. So we know that Russia's asked China for help with its economy and its military. And America's claiming that China is thinking about it, which China completely denies. Now, in terms of what kind of punishment China could face if it does cross the line. Well, the White House wouldn't go into any details on any of that, but it's thought it could be economic sanctions because the trade that China does with the US and the European Union is worth trillions. And it's really interesting to see what China's interpretation of the conversation was. Basically, it was quite anodyne, quite neutral language, saying nobody wanted the crisis, people want peace. But it's always about what's not said. And Mr. Xi did not explicitly blame Russia for the conflict, nor did he denounce President Putin. Was there a feeling in the White House, from what you can see, that it was a successful call? I mean, was there a sense of relief or foreboding, do you think? It was interesting to watch the press conference afterwards with the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. You know, reporters were obviously asking the questions, you know, did you get what you wanted out of it? Did you make clear what the consequences would be? Have you, you know, got any more details on if China's offering to help Russia? And it seemed like that America's still not confident that China won't help Russia, that it's still not got that reassurance from China. But I think the way that the US would look at it is that at least conversations are being had, at least the, the communications are open. This was the first 
conversation that President Biden has had with China's president since the invasion began. And it was the result of a big buildup. So at the start of the week, you had his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, having this seven-hour meeting with China's top foreign policy officer. And then it's led to this meeting. So I suppose in that respect, it's successful. But I, I do think that it was pretty fanciful for the US to think that it could get China to explicitly condemn Russia in the way that it was hoping it would. Nomia Iqbal in Washington. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 19, 2022. So I have been told uh, this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, counter racist suggestions. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Some issue with the live feed not working correctly. Uh, So for folks, I guess if you normally listen uh, via tune in on the live stream, uh, it's malfunctioning for some reason. Uh, contacted, I emailed Mr. Reed. Hopefully, uh, I'll be able to figure out the details before we broadcast tomorrow. Uh, but you can always listen via the phone. Uh, you can share, let folks know if they're having any difficulties listening on their device or online or what have you. Just dial in for the live feed. The archive will be available as usual. Uh, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Before we get to the folks who dialed and called in, wrote in, uh, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. Visit my blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, when you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. Beneath the PayPal button, you'll see links for PayPal, Venmo, Cash App. Uh, the cash app address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Enormous thanks to all the folks who have supported, kept the cows on the air 13 years, baker's dozen. Hopefully uh, we have been more constructive than not uh, helped non-white people get a accurate understanding of what white supremacy racism is and how it works. Uh, in addition, you can visit Amazon.com. Uh, my wish list is under Gus T. Renegade. It is also linked uh, at my blog. Uh, again, huge thanks all the folks who have nabbed an item or four from the wish list over the years. Uh, hopefully, the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy.
Uh, let's see. Additionally, we should be here tomorrow. Uh, global Sunday talk on racism once a month uh, because this is a global problem. I think one of the metaphors they were talking about the black students at San Diego State University. I love San Diego. Uh, but they were saying that the young students, they don't come to be revolutionaries. They didn't come to be on a racial battleground. I don't know what that is, racial battleground. But the entire planet is a quote-unquote racial battleground under the system of white supremacy racism. So, Global Sunday Talk tomorrow. We'll talk about the situation uh, in Ukraine. Be able to check in with folks who are uh, in Europe uh, to see how that's impacting uh, racism, white supremacy, if any of the refugees have been coming to that area of the world and what's been reported. Uh, but irregular time, that's tomorrow early, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, let's see. I didn't have a report specifically, but it is one year since the uh, spa shooting down in Georgia. Folks remember that last year. Eight fatalities, white gunman goes in and kills uh, lots of non-white so-called Asian females. They have lots of different reports uh, talking about that. Sometimes white people do their even anniversary killings and the like. Um, with some of the reports that we did here specifically, uh, let's see, they had the report. They talked about mental health uh, since the two years of the pandemic. And they talked about how so many people have been isolated and then the confusion. And then, you know, if you're student age, uh, kindergarten through postgrad or what have you, uh, all the confusion about what's going to happen. Do you have to be vaccinated and masked and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then if you're working, are you going to be furloughed? Are you going to be laid off? And just all the rest of it. It's just been endless chaos and confusion for two plus years and just how much that has a detrimental impact on the mental health and well-being uh, particularly for black people uh, and they talked about how some folks even just losing the zest for wanting to do things that they would typically enjoy things that would typically be relaxing and fun reading and getting some exercise in and just spending more time being on the couch for many people that means eating bad food and watching lots of white supremacy content entertainment content uh, on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is uh, and just man and particularly for children they've had so many reports talking about this has been just disastrous for lots of children for a myriad of reasons Make sure you're checking in with your children, looking at your children, seeing what they're up to, trying to do activities with your children where you can get outside, especially now that it's uh, light later and getting warmer, presumably, depending on where you are. But trying to get outside to do things uh, so important uh, because this has just been devastating for everyone, but particularly children. Uh, let's see. And I thought also within that report, many things reminded me of Dr. Welsing. They were talking to folks and they were saying, you know, Asian people, it's been a year since the spa shooting and all of that racism and folks wanting to see therapists. They even said with some of the so-called Asian people that they had taboos against getting therapy. It's like, wow, they say that about other victims. You hear that about black people all the time. It's never just, hey, in a system of white supremacy, racism, race soldiers generally don't make it easy 
for non-white people to get benefits and time off to go see therapists and counselors who are non-white and have an understanding of white supremacy racism. It's not like it's going to be tons of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's waiting to talk to you about your problems. And particularly that's important because within that segment, they said, oh, let's go do some therapy. You're having some anxiety and it's been all stressful and everything. Oh, certainly. Okay, let's get some medication during the pandemic. I don't think Dr. Welsing would have been saying that third generation physician. She would say, let's be honest and talk about racism, white supremacy, this spa shooting, anti uh, Asian violence, white supremacy, all that. Let's be honest and talk about that, not let's get you on all these addictive medications. Lest my memory is bad about the legacy of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. They continued. They talked about the folks in Minnesota. Uh, where victims of white supremacy where they put Interstate 94 and tossed all the black people out. Incidentally, we just talked about that in detail uh, last summer. Uh, we had a myriad of guests on the program, white and non-white, talking about this same pattern of behavior, racial dislocation throughout uh, the Northwestern Hemisphere, Minnesota specifically, and talked about the folks in Rondo and how they're now trying to, trying to uh, compensate and go back and change some things around and improve things. I thought it was so pitiful maybe uh, you can remove the maybe definitely pitiful but some other adjectives would qualify as well within that segment they were talking to some of the victims and they were saying man looking at some of the potential improvements and, and changes that they're going to make for these black people and saying oh my goodness you know we should have our own Wakanda forever right here in Rondo in this part of Minnesota it's, I think I said last week I'm not a fan of Ryan Coogler films None of them, apparently. I didn't even see Black Panther. Wakanda Forever might as well be saying Zamunda Forever. Didn't they do the sequel to Coming to America last year? I didn't see that either. I heard that was trash, too. Metaphor, I heard that was not a quality film, but that's not, you know, rocket science metaphor. Uh, but Zamunda and Wakanda, we're in a system of white supremacy. No such place exists. Zamunda, Wakanda, they're only place that we have are racial battlegrounds. If Zamunda did exist, it would be a racial battleground. They probably have all kinds of graffiti and nigger this and all the rest of it. If Wakanda did exist, man, we got lead in our water and what is going on? That's about what you can expect in the system of white supremacy. We have to replace grasp why these things keep happening and then go about the business of trying to solve this problem permanently ain't no Wakanda sorry you saw what happened to Ryan Coogler last week talked about that in Atlanta I thought that was the Wakanda the black Mecca that's what they call it and he's shackled at the bank black teller and black officers doing the shackling how you get shackled in Wakanda land Let's see. Next, they talked about man had notes on so many things that weren't even in the. Oh my goodness! They talked about the segment on the HBCU schools, uh, and they're supposed to be getting funding because they've had all of these bomb threats, racial battleground. I just said. 
uh, where they've had all these bomb threats and what have you, where this has continued. Uh, I forgot how many. It's been so many of them, dozens uh, of these facilities that have been threatened and all the rest of it. Uh, I have no idea because they've had to, like, cancel class repeatedly and uh, talk about mental health. Uh, I have no idea how you would, you know, have some sort of security uh, when this hasn't been stopped. And they said it was young white people who were accused the suspects in doing the threats here, like a group of five or six of them. Anywho, within that segment, they were saying they used the metaphor that HBCUs have to punch above their weight. I thought that was significant because I've heard that specific metaphor used almost exclusively, exclusively with HBCUs. It would be very different and more accurate if they just said, hey, HBCUs are regularly looted by racists. They have many reports talking about this and deliberately underfunded. And then in addition to all of that theft and financial malfeasance from whites, then they actually service graduate a disproportionately high number of black students. That is way more accurate. I know that's a lot more to say than just they consistently punch above their weight. But that's not really getting to the accuracy of the white people are deliberately doing things to undermine these institutions and even just black people, black students ability to be able to use these institutions to thrive. Then you wonder why they have all these problems. Why is it molded, grambling and crumbling facilities and the students got a protest and it's rodents and vermin in the dorms. Maybe if they weren't financially looted all the time, they could solve some of these problems. Wouldn't have to punch above their weight boxing metaphor talking about educating black people not fighting and bopping somebody upside the head I don't think uh, they talked about uh, the doctors oh man that was so much got to talk about that one one uh, we have cows listeners doing exactly what doctors uh, Oni and Uche uh, Blackenstock are doing focused on health racism white supremacy want to be doctors because this causes so many problems had the rewind there they talked about infant mortality rates maternal mortality rates black males specifically having the shortest life expectancy i've heard all of that before incidentally i did want to pause i have heard several cows listeners say i don't think those statistics are true the first two about infant mortality for black children maternal mortality for black moms I've never heard a black medical professional dispute those statistics it's been unanimous amongst black medical professionals anyway within that segment and they even included all of that is systemic racism white supremacy even the lack of black doctors that was the one where I did the pause because they said there are 6% black doctors and approximately 3% are black females. That's one pause right there because they already said who's got the lowest life expectancy. Those old privileged, toxic black males. So Forbes magazine, they did a whole report. What did they say? Why are black male doctors still so scarce in America? So what did they say? The fact that black males compromise only 3.1% of medical school enrollment 
for the 1978-79 school year, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, probably isn't that alarming. After all, it was 1978. Jimmy Carter was president. Dallas and Greece had just been released. The shocking and demoralizing realization, though, is that the comparable stat for the 2019-20 year is actually lower at 2.9% or nearly unchanged. How could it be that over the past 40 years with all of our progress, the number is actually worse now than then? Indeed, for those who felt the election of a black president was clear proof, that America had moved beyond racism, this single sobering statistic is just one of many to the contrary. Let me skip down to the Dow. Okay, here we go. Let's see. While the numbers of African Americans are dismal overall, super important, but we'll print that. For black men, they are particularly tragic. Hmm. Indeed. AAMC's data shows that the percentage enrollment for African-American women actually increased from only 2.2 percent during the 1978-79 school year to 4.4 percent during the 2019-20 school year. That's about what was it? Let me go back, make sure I get the number of black males that are 3.1. And they said it's actually at 2.9. Now, again, all of those are horrible, but I mean, dang, I thought it was black male privilege and patriarchy and sexism. No, just like young academic in the classroom, can't even get any black male doctors, can't even get any black physicians, period. They don't want any more Dr. Welsings, probably don't want doctors Uche and Oni. I'm sure they don't, especially they're going to be talking about systemic racism, white supremacy. But yeah, the black misandry once again, 2.9 for black males. And that's just the folks that get enrolled. I'm sure it's lower than that for the actual physicians because everybody doesn't get passed, through, especially the Negro males. You know. uh, let's see. Last two, and then we'll get to the folks who dialed in uh, for one police officer and firefighter. Jay Rankin police officer and firefighter now how do you have three different reports now I can see if they say one time but you know there's no count Al Sharpton out race baiting trying to accuse uh, a quality white man and police officer saying he called him a nigger and all the rest of it whoa 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 you got three different wildly different incidents with the same thing they said oh Jay Rankin wildly intoxicated and I've said that for years one of the worst combinations in the known universe racial battleground that we are on whites alcohol head for the hills remember Andrew Walls from last week that was in Ohio we talked about that in Kent and Akron remember drunk white man walking down the street and just oh niggers ah, he did that was exactly what he did starts using racist slurs and whammo punches a non-white female in the face for no reason they called them a posse remember that one drunk white man so police officer and firefighter jay rankin he's accused of being drunk out sees a white woman what are you doing with this nigger male he's raping black males oh you mud shark 
Now, if you got a white woman as a witness now, really? Really? Then he goes to Walmart. How are you at Walmart cutting a fool? And you're a police officer and a firefighter. How are you cutting a fool at Walmart? You go get your bulk items or whatever. You get your fried chicken and get out of the store. What are you doing out there harassing black people? Now, again, now, are all of these people making up? Did Al Sharpton come and make every one of these reports? He was at the Walmart, too. He was out there. He witnessed the thing with the white man and all that. Excuse me, white woman with the black man and all that. All these different incidents of him being out harassing. Nigga this, nigga that, nigga this, nigga that. And then they are concerned that he's been tainted in the public. Won't be able to get a fair trial. I think tainted is in the word guide as is fair. How you get on both of those? <laughs> Nobody in all those reports. I don't know. Eh, maybe we'll let you be a police officer. But you can't be both. If you're going to be going around and nigga this, nigga that, nigga this. And threatening white women. I mean, gee whiz. Apparently not old Jay Rankin. Uh, now, Melanie Dixon, black female president at American River College. That's the one where they said, hey, we contacted the NAACP. We thought about it. We're going to go ahead and pray, play the email. I wish they had played it unredacted. Let it ride. Let's hear what she had to say. That one, I almost did the President Obama speech about young white people because this they arrested this woman, as you heard. She's a college student, so she's like early 20s right there in the neighborhood she would have been probably in high school at the time that President Obama made those comments about young white people being better about all of this they didn't say that this white woman she should have been named she's been arrested what's, what's with the anonymity persons unknown Philip Dre they didn't say she called in one time they didn't say she called in five times they didn't say she called in a couple dozen times they said she left hundreds. They didn't even say she left a hundred, which would have been appalling. They said hundreds of messages like what you heard. How is that? Now, one, that's one pause right there. What does it mean to be white? And I don't want to hear nothing about the man. We just read that, right? Philip K. Dick. I don't want to hear nothing about that. Patriarchy and the white man is holding us down. The book that I saw in the library yesterday, The White Man's Heaven, wrong. What does it mean to be classified as white woman, white man, white child? What type of time has anybody here? I know we can cut a fool right over that bedroom activity. People love to talk about that. I'm not asking for details. Has anybody here where things got so chaotic and out of control, you were so upset with your uh, care mate attempted, whatever, at the time, you ended up leaving them hundreds. You left a hundred messages. Coon, this, and I can't believe you. No counseling. You left them a hundred harassing messages because you were so angry with them. Has anyone done that? Much less hundreds. What type of investment in what did Melanie Dixon do to this person? 
Did she keep you from graduating? Did she write you up? Did she steal your parking place? Did she key your car? You got to tell me something. Hundreds of met. You don't have a job. You don't have Netflix. We do not. Mr. Fuller said the most familiar mystery. What does it mean to be white? How do you even get to hundreds of calls like that where you're threatening on record, threatening to shoot someone? How does that get to hundreds before you? Let me put it this way. So if Augusti, the black O.J. Simpson. If there was an I was if there was a white McDonald's employee, I was upset with. You didn't do right on my quarter pounder with cheese. I wanted extra pickles. And I called and threatened them five times. That would be that. I don't even think I would have to threaten to shoot them. And this is a college American River College Melanie Dixon president. I'm sure she has a Ph.D. Probably a postdoctorate and all that. What does it mean? She's ignorant, right? That's what you're going to tell me. This is an ignorant white woman, right? In her 20s. Mm -hmm. Anywho, uh, I will leave it there. The last segment, just I think that's so important. President Biden's commentary to China, their threat. You will get it if you try and get involved in this. Like, wow, I was curious if you've got white on white crime a white squabble or conflict generally they pivot back to who the violence the problem is the dark people non-white people so we'll have to see how this evolves but it would not surprise me at all if somehow all of this ends up leading to some sort of strife conflict with China talking about that for years anyway right Almost put the Tojo segment in there, but that's wrong group of slant-eyed people, right? Victims of white supremacy. It had to be accurate geographically. Anywho, uh, let's see. Anything else? Make sure I get in. I'll share. Uh, we had a listener who wrote in since health came up so much. I'll share his written commentary, and then we'll get to the folks who dialed in the email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, victim of racism, black male, privileged black male, probably funked out of med school. He wrote in uh, greetings. I haven't written or been listening since late 2020. I just started listening again today with the March 4, 2021 neutralizing workplace racism. Side note, I had a major heart attack late 2020. John Henryism. Hope you are feeling way better recuperating super healthy and strong I spent two months in ICU before receiving a double transplant heart and kidney Yee. we talked about that hundreds of interlaced fingers Dr. Vanessa Grubbs been a guest on the cows twice uh, her book specifically about kidney transplants white supremacy racism continuing uh, I tested positive for COVID five days after being released from the hospital no symptoms then was treated for prostate cancer. All of this is like exactly what 
the uh, Blackenstock twins were talking about. Incidentally, I don't think they said in that segment that they're twins. They're twins. Um, but that's everything that he talked about that they've been talking about for the last two years, incidentally. And Dr. Vanessa Grubb said that if you have a kidney transplant, you are what they call immunocompromised. So you would be at greater risk for COVID-19. Black people, more risk for those, all of those health, all of that white supremacy racism. Exactly what they said. I would like to stress the importance of maintaining one's health, but also having appropriate health insurance. My two month and one week stay, along with the various procedures, the hospital charged my insurance eight point eight million dollars and my insurance paid three point three million dollars. My portion was about thirty thousand. I carried a PPO through Blue Cross for over 25 years and never needed it, but wanted the flexibility not associated with an HMO. If you are interested, I can share some of my observations from my hospital stay. I would definitely be interested. If anything, that would be motivation. This is why you want to invest on the other end. Definitely health insurance. Absolutely. Exactly what he said. Health insurance and all of that super important. And that's neutralizing workplace racism. Jay Rankin, I'm sure, has phenomenal health insurance if he's a police officer and firefighter to then go around and harass and nigga this and nigga that. What are you doing, Mud Shark? What are you doing with this no-count nigger? He's got rape and tendencies. But he's got great health insurance. They make sure that the niggers, we don't get great jobs. Like That's why that white woman calling a fuss at Melanie Dixon got health insurance, benefits and what have you, get your teeth all cleaned on schedule. I totally agree health insurance but make the investment in your health that's why I do all that talking eating a plant-based diet watching what you eat put those cheetos down not eating at mcdonald's all the cheese and dairy products and potato chips and all that nonsense try to eat the best that you can take care of yourself get that exercise drink water make that the base beverage of your diet put those sodas down and sugary concoctions and what have you drinking more water doing as much you can especially kidneys that he's talking about right there alcohol sodas sugary beverages drink more water plant based diet Anywho, he continues, I'm writing this email in response to some of the information heard on the March 4 program, Neutralizing Workplace Racism. In my opinion, suspected racist white supremacists generally try to get an emotional response from the victims of racism with their words and actions. Pause right there. Now, I didn't even say anything about the San Diego State University situation. I love San Diego. I lived in California, even though I lived in the Bay Area. But I mean, uh, I love San Diego went to the beach in San Diego and went right. I love San Diego, but I mean, hey, that's not Shangri La. That is still a racial battleground, and that's exactly what he said. That's the exact segment where he used that tacky metaphor, uh, whatever that means. Uh, and and that's the segment where he talked about them being uh, revolutionaries, and I get to that later. But in that segment, they said that the white teacher. Professor Corlett, he would come to class and nigga this, nigga that, nigga this, nigga that to do exactly what he just wrote. Get you riled up, an emotional response. I just came here to get my 4.0 in this class and keep it pushing and 
nigga, this now I gotta report racism and what? Oh, you getting upset? You getting upset? Oh, I can say nigga if I want to. You upset, nigga? You upset, nigga? You upset, nigga? Absolutely. They do this in the classroom. They do this in the workplace. They do this often. Now, you don't think Officer Jay Rankin and police officer, excuse me, firefighter Jay Rankin, you don't think he does that when he pulls somebody over? Do you know why I stopped you, nigga? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Hmm? Hmm? You getting upset? Oh, oh, you getting upset? Looks like you were upset. Hmm? All plant chimp out. That's why they got the website. He continues uh, getting emotional response. The victims of racism, white supremacy must teach themselves not to provide an emotional response, but a logical response by asking questions when necessary and thinking about the answers provided, if any, and sometimes not saying a word regarding the alleged conflict in the region of the world called the Ukraine. I haven't seen any video footage of the actual conflict. The media has only provided visual footage of what they say has occurred and the aftermath math. If there are cameras in place to show what allegedly happened, why not show it when it is happening? All questions. The retired firefighter talked about the NFL combine. One thing he mentioned was the testing conducted, including an intelligence evaluation. I don't think the NFL is testing for intelligence, but rather whether the selected players will follow all. And he has that all caps instructions without questioning anything. Now, I think Anthony Pryor, uh, he's multiple time guest on the program. Uh, we talked. Well, he has multiple books, but the first time around the slave side of Sunday, uh, which incidentally, white people made that book very difficult to access. It goes for like five hundred dollars on Amazon sometimes that I've seen myself. Um, but in that book, he talks about that. And we talked about that on the program. Like, oh, yeah, we're not trying to just let any old nigger in here. Like you all come in here and decide you might want to talk about white supremacy, race and white supremacy, racism yourself. Had all that with Walter Beach the third as well. Have more of you. We went through all that with Jim Brown. Shut up and take this football and get your brain damage. Much obliged and above all, I hope you are safe, recuperating, taking excellent care of yourself. Self uh, health well-being has been is consistently under attack in the system of white supremacy. Dr. Welsing said you cannot be a victim of white supremacy and qualify for mental health, physical health. None of it. Uh, unless you're living, I guess, in Zamunda, Wakanda. Uh, with that, um, there are other things, but I'll get to those. Uh, the metaphors, there were so many of them uh, presented. I just go back to the San Diego State University report briefly, where Professor Corlett, this white man, come in here and nigga this and nigga that and all this and tell the students, hey, I can't be fired. Only way you get me out of here is if I rape someone of that right there. <laughs> that right there, total assault in the classroom. Like, are you serious? What type of professional instructor, educator? You're not going to let young academic be an instructor, right? But you'll let this white man get up here. The only way I'm going to get fired is if I rape somebody. <laughs> what? Do what? Now, you want to talk about sexism and patriarchy like, man, feminist, you should. I mean, why is he allowed to be in the classroom another 30 seconds? White supremacy, racism. But they said the black students, they go to San Diego State. I would be going to go, hey, let's hit Corona Beach. 
Matter of fact, let's hit all the beaches. Let's hit Tijuana right next to uh, Mexico. Let's go to the San Diego Zoo. Famous. So many things to do. My goodness. Wouldn't even remember that the Chargers used to play here. Who cares? Nah. We got it. Is Professor Colette going to call us a nigger again today? Now, they said hate one of the words on my hate list. Cannot stand it. It is not constructive. Should not be used. They came here to study and be young scholars, not to be revolutionaries. Pause. I don't even know what that means. You pause, I guess, for Pamela Evans Harris. She used the term. Maybe she had a definition for it, but I don't even know what that means. Why am I a so-called revolutionary, a.k.a. black identity extremist? Why am I a revolutionary just because I don't want to be a victim of racism? I'm paying thousands of dollars of tuition to be at a California State University and I don't want to be called a nigra in class and now because of that I'm a revolutionary why am I why isn't it I just came here to be a scholar I didn't come here to be a victim of white supremacy revolutionary anywho uh being accurate with words important race soldiers they will use metaphors regularly uh, to obfuscate and deceive masters with the use of words incorrect use of words generally victims of white supremacy myself included we are still learning and we've been exposed to this misconduct for years Uh, many of us we don't have logic we're still thinking and we have not come to conclusions or we don't have logic to articulate our views so we will substitute a metaphor, simile, analogy of, analogy of some sort. Uh, if we could work to be precise, specific with our word choice, that would be great. I think that's a major component of counter racism. Uh, so I will give out reminders about the metaphors. Much obliged. Uh, the number again is 720 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, let us see uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your views that would be grand uh, make sure everyone gets at least one chance to speak uh, and then if you are in a noisy environment, uh, if you could get yourself to a quieter area, that would be great just so that we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Much obliged. Uh, star six one. If folks have commentary uh, again, there might be some issues where they are the live stream malfunctioning for some reason. Hopefully we'll get it fixed uh, quickly. Uh, but you can always dial in via the phone lines. Uh, let's see. First few folks with a hand up. Line should be open. Proceed. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Uh, victim from New Jersey. Um, so I, I came in kind of late, um, so I didn't really listen to uh, some of the news clips, and, and that's that's the jewel of this all. Um, but you you mentioned something as you were talking. You were just talking about Ukraine. Um, I mean, it, it's just it's just the the hypocrisy of it all and how they're just able to get away with the hypocrisy. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I'm old enough, you know, I witnessed Hurricane Katrina under George W. Bush. 
I've witnessed um, the invasion of Iraq, the, the 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 invasion of Ukraine, and and you know uh, George Bush is on record of saying you know they you know they they I don't know if they they tried to assassinate his daddy or you know they they you know they offended his daddy, but he's on record of also basically saying you know in some form or fashion that, you know, this whole invasion is not only justified by the fact that Iraq invaded, I mean, that, that Iraq is suspected of participating in 9-11, but they disrespected his daddy. Um, Michelle Obama, victim. Um, again, thanks for the cows, because... Um, a while, I, I I would be one to you know just kind of like point out the just kind of like the uh, what some would would classify as just sellout behavior, but I don't do that anymore. But Michelle Obama, you know, shared a piece of candy with um, uh, George W. Bush, and you know they have a friendship, and I just remember. Um, Barack Obama's one of his early um, introductions to us was Hurricane Katrina and critiquing George W. Bush's handling of uh, what they what they called refugees uh, trying to escape the waters. Uh, Michelle Obama gave grace to George W. Bush, but in her book. She still had some words, you know. She still was kind of unforgiving to Jeremiah Rice, but VGQ um, victim. She's a victim, so I have no. Uh, now that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm learning, and I'm learning to be patient, and I'm learning to um, just basically let victims, you know, experience their experience and express themselves the way they want to express themselves, whether I agree or disagree. But I just brought all up all that to say the hypocrisy of this country to talk about invasion to, uh, and, and I'm no friend of Vladimir Putin. I don't know him. I'm not, I'm on the side of the planet that's called the United States, not Russia. But the fact that, you know, one one group of white people's invasion is justified and another white people's invasion is not justified. It's just a lesson in just like criminality and hypocrisy. And if you want to basically witness what white supremacy is and what they are truly about, just look at these wars. Look at these wars. Look at these wars that they partake in. You know? And, you know, so I, I, I just, I just find myself just, just so just, just kind of like anger when, uh, not anger, but just shaking my head when I listen to these, these, these news outlets and these news, um, um, the commentary of, uh, this, this particular conflict. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just amazing. And even the hypocrisy of the white people who, 
fly the flag of America, basically scolding other people not to assist the white people that fly the flag of Russia. But the hypocrisy of it all, and, and, and like you brought up, scolding China, when for years I've witnessed the United States basically choose sides, stay quiet, when the white people that's classified as Israelis discriminately bomb the Palestinians. You know, it, it, it's just amazing. And also, I, don't, I didn't listen to the news clip, and I don't know if people are aware of this, but there's a town in Tennessee that, uh, that I've become aware of that, you know, that had their charter, this township, for 100 years. If I'm not mistaken, and please, somebody that's listening, correct me if I'm wrong, because we definitely do strive for accuracy. I strive for accuracy, but I think it's Mason or Madison, and this town of black people who had, you know, um, white people, corrupt white people plunder them and were basically indicted. And, and if I'm not mistaken, some even arrested. And some black people came in and they're not even getting a, 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 a good salary to basically govern this black town. But now that Ford Motors, has basically is going to come and build within four miles of this town that's going to create a a surplus of uh, revenue. The county in Tennessee is now trying to basically say that they want to incorporate them into the county and they want to basically dissolve, if I'm using the right language, this town and basically have this town come in, you know, just basically join into the county and not be independent of itself anymore because of uh, the fact that Ford Motors is building. See, for years we've been taught that white supremacy is name-calling, but that's white supremacy in its truest form. You know what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's 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 not only violence, it's economic terrorism. So now that this town is in proximity of wealth, in proximity of basically benefiting from the development of Fort Motors, the comptroller now wants to rein this town in and basically have it dissolved into the county. Like like this is racism. And Gus, I'm talking, I'm not necessarily talking to you. I'm just basically talking for people that come in the archives and listen. You know, for just some reason, I'm just very frustrated, you know, just right now. Um, you know, unfortunately, I, I, I listened, and I'm going to close. I listened to something that you said, and you said, um, you know, Gus T. Effin Renegade. I, ha I had to keep rewinding that. And I think if anybody deserves to write to cuss and basically, you know what I'm saying, and, and put their name after that cuss word and emphasis is you. Um, I've learned so much from this program. I've learned so much from from um, 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 the Grand Sester. I've learned so much, um, you know, from Nilly Fuller, Francis Cress Wilson, 
and the patience that I've, I've, I've gained for my people when I'm amongst my people. And I don't call anybody my brother. I don't, I don't, I don't even provoke that I love them, but I've gained an understanding for our situation. And that gives me just, just better. Um, I can navigate my life better amongst other victims. Um, I close with that. I'm, I'm sorry if I was just ranting, but it, it was just, you know, this, this, this was a lot on my mind uh, this night. Thank you. Black brother. Black brother of hell. Much obliged, sir. Uh, it has been tough times. Uh, brother just wrote in, was talking about, you know, having to have a oof, uh, kidney transplant, heart transplant, and all the rest of it. It's definitely been lots of things to be stressed in. And <laughs> mental health had that segment. Uh, you said you didn't get to hear the news because we did talk about that. It's definitely been a lot to be uh, stressed about. Um, I can only say um, under times, Dr. Welsing talked about that a number of times that frequently uh, when we are stressed, a lot of anxiety, racists really are are mistreating us uh, in an intense manner. Uh, Our reflex is to get frustrated with other non-white people. Uh, She talked about that repeatedly. Uh, I certainly I talked about it for years. I talked about it even when they were still in the White House that. Man, I so hoped that uh, both the Obamas, all of them, really children too, um, would maybe be able to write a book and you know give up you know some of the some of the the things that we did not hear about in terms of things that were said, racism, white supremacy that was practiced. I mean, that's a decade of their lives that they are hanging out in the White House and you know things that were happening and all that. Powerful white people around the world that they were around practicing racism. Uh, but I mean, hey, you know. What will you be allowed to say? How much can you say? Even that about uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Now, I mean, hey, you had better have whether it was that or reconciliation. You had better sound reconciliatory talking about old GW. You had better. You had, in fact, and you better uh, sound like you still upset. You still hot under the collar metaphor with old uh, Reverend Wright talking about damn America what, what, who was this coon that time I mean they got whole lots of it It'd be ashamed if something were to happen to Sasha wouldn't it keep that in mind while you're writing that memoir I'm sure it'll be great they got a whole lot of ways you know under the system of white supremacy to make sure you know we do what they want so victims guaranteed qualified I had several folks who told me Michelle Obama did not exactly write a book that was a tell-all about racism, white supremacy during her time in the White House. Oh, well, we just keep doing the best that we can to uh, try to solve the problem. Maybe Sasha and Malia will get around to it, you know, one of these days, maybe. Anywho, uh, as it relates to the uh, town in Tennessee, I had not heard of it uh, before, still learning. Uh, the report I found, uh, WREG News, Mason, Tennessee, asked to surrender its charter to face or face state takeover. The Tennessee Comptroller of the Treasury made a rare stop in Mason, Tennessee this week, urging the town leaders to give up Mason's charter or be taken over by the state. Tennessee State Comptroller Jason Mumpower, I suspect that's a white man, said it was meant to be a wake up call. Hmm. 
for the Tipton County town of a little over 1,200 people. The town of Mason has had a mismanagement and financial trouble for many years now, said John Dunn, director of communications with Tennessee Comptroller's office. I think it was certainly somewhat unique to see the Comptroller in their town, but it also sent a message that this was a very serious situation. For years, WREG has reported about the financial and legal woes plaguing the small town of Mason, Tennessee, from questionable audits to elected officials indicted by the state for fraud, waste and abuse. The state is urging Mason, Mason's elected officials to relinquish the town's charter, unincorporate and be folded into Tipton County government. The other option is for the state to take over. The comptroller's office would have the final say on every expenditure that is made within the town of Mason. And that is a difficult place to be, Dunn said. It's something we don't do very often. The prospect of giving up Mason's charter has stirred emotions at City Hall. We can and we will fight for our charter, Vice Mayor Virginia Rivers said. In fact, they do go on to say Rivers questioned the timing of the comptroller's visit, saying the state is getting serious now because Mason sits so close to where Ford's Blue Oval City will be built. Black people being booted for white business. This is a billion dollar investment for Ford's Blue Oval City. So I'm sure this little town of uh, and this is to make electric trucks. Oh my God! <laughs> like, oh yeah, y'all are gone. <laughs> what, what is Mr. Fully? Be prepared to move. We are trying to get us some electric trucks around here. We got the gas. You see how much gas is? Negros move. That's what it's going to be. That's what I would expect. So, e, I'd never even heard of Mason, Tennessee. I've been to. Uh, I guess that's what I've been to. East Tennessee, not West Tennessee. Uh, much obliged victim in New Jersey. Uh, Star 6-1, other folks who have commentary, questions, uh, reports. Retired firefighter was talking to us yesterday uh, about the black males in Florida being subject or accused of a hate crime. Uh, and he said, maybe we can talk about that tomorrow because I didn't know anything about it. So I said, oh, I'll look, see if I can find anything. I actually did uh, find information uh, on this one. And we had just talked about black people, how they will find some way to make sure that black people get accused of hate crimes happened here again. And I mean, this one, he was even saying yesterday that this, never mind, just listen to it. See if you see what you think about this down in the good old sunshine state, Ron DeSantis land. And now to a group of students getting a lesson in the law, accused of a hate crime on other students. Seven's Tavares Jones is live outside Lions Creek Middle School with the details. Tavares. Vanessa, good morning to you. It's off to another school day here at Lions Creek Middle School, but on Wednesday, it was off to a different start for a group of students who say they were attacked by their own peers. He's scared to go back to school, obviously, around the kids are in the same class in the hallways. The parent of an alleged attack victim telling 7 News his son was targeted because of the color of his skin. Coconut Creek police say this attack was racially provoked and carried out by five fellow students at Lions Creek Middle School. The parent telling 7 News it all unfolded Wednesday just before school outside the North Recreation Complex. He got out of the car. I think he heard some noises and some kids started saying, we're going to get revenge on you for what you did in the past. And he got jumped. They hit him and ran off to some other kids and kept going. His son, just one of four students who tell police they were approached by the group of kids yelling, you are white. 
They were then allegedly tackled and beaten with sticks and cable cords as they heard things like it's Opposites Day and Brown Power. It's concerning that what's going on in the school and they don't really seem to be doing much about it and the steps they take don't really protect the kids. Hello, Lions family. This is Mrs. Winter, principal of Lions Creek Middle School. Lions Creek Middle School principal alerting parents of the incident by phone and claims to be working with police. This as a father weighs options to keep his son safe. The options are to go to a different school and run away or be in the same school with the same kids again. Telling 7 News something has to be done before it's too late. It's an issue and it's going to push kids to the next level to where something they're not going to be able to come back from. Now, back out here live, I've been speaking to some parents this morning as they're dropping their children off. Some of the parents I spoke with tell me that this incident does not reflect this community. As for those five students who were arrested, they're now charged with battery and prejudice while committing battery. For now, live here in Coconut Creek, Tavares Jones, today in Florida. Context of white supremacy. That is uh, hate crime charges. What they're talking about for these young people. Now, when he was talking about it yesterday, a retired firefighter, he was saying it seems like something's kind of suspicious. That metaphor they would use fishy about this because they didn't even say black power, right? If these were some wild, you know, African hooliganism going on, why wouldn't they be saying black power, like brown power? Why are they saying brown power? What? Any of this opposites day? What does that even mean? All of it, like whip <laughs> under these times. I said you do not want any uh, confrontations with things the way that they are now. You have an incident like this. I wouldn't care if they are young children. If you're out saying and doing that, it might not just be that you get hate crime charges and all the rest, expelled from school and have to go to jail or juvenile facility or what have you. You could be shot. This is Florida, right? I was saying earlier, like it was a black male uh, who was beaten, assaulted by enforcement officers for brandishing tea in public. I said, man, we just went through Black History Month. Now, I mean, really, now, if we didn't learn anything from the tragedy of Trayvon Martin, same state, you cannot brandish tea in public. So to be out brown power opposites what what you could be shot and killed make it plain like if you thought there was some sort of harassment or what have you before oh my god let George Zimmerman be out walking and hear that Although it sounds very suspicious, uh, if I were in Florida, I would definitely keep an eye. If I had, if I was an attempted black parent, mother or father, I would share that sort of report with my offspring and just being mindful because that sort of thing, racists will lie. They will take a report like that as, oh my God, it's Negro mob. They were doing that sort of thing with Trayvon Martin. Since I mentioned his name, that was happening right after he was killed. They said it was mobs of Negro hooligans. Exactly what they said in their vengeance going to pay for Trayvon that sort of thing so I would be mindful if you're out in public you get out of school and you're with your friends be mindful they might see you and just oh my god it's a gang and that's what it just be alert that's why I say you have to be alert 
it is very dangerous times uh, being out and about. Even retired firefighter said about his offspring who was out. He got that flat tire and the race soldier came up yelling at them, being all aggressive, hostile, had a firearm uh, on his side. Like, now imagine if he wants to lie or pretend or maybe he even does here. Brown power. It's opposite day. You're going to pay. Can't afford to not talk to your children. Honestly, I'd say honestly and frequently about white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works. Do your best uh, to try to avoid these type of situations for your offspring. Very dangerous times. Again, folks can, you know, investigate that uh, incident. Kind of see what happens, how it all evolves. I guess they'll have a trial at some point. We get more details. Anywho, uh, the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. Decode five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, folks are spectating or doing whatever else they're uh, doing for springtime. We'll uh, check see if other folks have hands or. They're just hanging out for the evening to uh, listen in. Uh, one thing that I did want to share, I had talked about it. I think I got to say like maybe a brief word uh, about it yesterday when we kind of wrapped up neutralizing workplace racism. Like I was able to go to the University of Washington library this week for the first time in two years, really, because they were shut. They were closed. Uh, they, the campus was closed. Everything was virtual. So. Uh, I hadn't been able to actually go to the library uh, since like March of 2020. So I'd kind of forgotten like how many resources uh, that they have at the University of Washington library. Like, see, I bragged about their libraries, you know, for a long time. All of the libraries for, were shut down for quite a long period of time. Right. They just slowly started to open back up uh, during 2021. And they still uh, have not begun to open back up all the way uh, at this point. So I went yesterday and all of this animated by the book we're reading in the book club right now. S.E. May Washington Williams Cowbell, uh, dear senator, uh, about raping Strom Thurmond. And that's connected to the program where I was potty mouth. (laughs) That was referenced earlier with uh, Dr. J. Russell Hawkins in his book, The Bible Told Them So, where he omitted. Oh, yeah. Strom Thurmond, who is like the character in that book omitted oh yeah he raped a 15 year old black child and produced a child with her and then lied about the whole thing and all that all the while the whole book is oh my god we can't have these raping black males in in school with our daughters and these raping negro bus drivers driving our little babies to school in the morning and the sun hasn't even come up yet and oh my god it's going to be a mongrel race and uh, every other page is that and you leave out oh yeah Strom Thurmond while he's doing all this raping a 15 year old black female Anyway, so I go to the library because they have tons. They, they have biographies on Strom Thurmond. And when we started reading Essie Mae Washington Williams, she talked about the 1911 lynching of Zachariah Walker. They have whole books just on that one lynching. I go to get that book, said book. Let's get more detail on what happened to old Zachariah Walker. Even see if we can get the white man who wrote this book. And wow. Gusty. Now, the library that I went to, even though it's been two years since I've been, I've been to this library bunches. I can be like that white woman. She's called and left hundreds of threatening terroristic messages uh, at American River College President 
Melanie Dixon. Gus T. has made hundreds of trips to the University of Washington Library at Seattle. So I'm going very familiar. I'm going to get my book on the lynching of Zachariah Walker. And as I'm going to get it, I look and the bookshelves at this university are massive. Like they're bigger than they're I'm over six feet tall. All of these bookshelves are taller than I have. They're massive. And so I kind of pull back for a second. Like it is a whole shelf of books on lynchings of Negroes. Like I said yesterday, this is not lynching of Chinese people out in California, the railroad. Eh, this is not lynching of Leo Frank and all that. This is not lynching of Jews and other eh, desperados and horse thieves. Eh. This is all about lynching black people. And it, it was so many books on lynching black people. I couldn't even get them all in a picture. I had to take several pictures kind of going down the aisle I posted some of them online it was so I hadn't even heard of and it wasn't even like they just had all these old books that were written way back when Roy Wilkins and NAACP members from way back many of these books have been written within the last 10 years some of them I even oh that one I know Patrick Phillips blood at the root that one I do know guest on the program that's about the lynching and racial purge down in Forsyth Georgia the, the one that caught my attention, I already mentioned white man's heaven talking about the lynchings and racial purge of black people from the Ozarks. I said yesterday. Now, I've had a number of cows listers. Oh, man, Gus, have you seen the Netflix classic? The Ozarks. Have you seen? I mean, wow, those white people. in I said, now. You put the Ozarks Netflix streaming in one hand. And I've seen a few of the episodes. White man's heaven the lynching and racial purge of Negroes from the Ozarks. Now, which one of these do I think is more important? Which one of these do I think will give you a more accurate understanding of why is that white woman calling President Dixon and talking about she's going to shoot her and all this hundreds of times? Hopefully, the author uh, of that book is a white woman, white man's heaven. Hopefully, we'll be able to get her on the program sometime soon white guests only but wow uh, that that would be the section to go to the library and stop I would dare anybody now tell me you're not interested in reading because you can probably find a book regardless of where your geographic location is and read about lynchings that happen to black people and or purges that happen to black people in your specific area or where your grandparents grew up or where your parents grew up or where you live now reading is more important than watching television oh man that wasn't even I forgot I did get the book on Zachariah Walker that I intended to, to nab got that hopefully we can get the author as a guest on the program but the Strom Thurmond material the book club Thursday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific Woo. wait until we get to the book club to share what did Gus find at the library about Strom Thurmond and why it is so disgraceful Dr. J. Russell Hawkins white man his conduct in leaving all of that out of his book coming this Thursday let's see other folks who dialed in if you have commentary to share proceed Hey everybody, this caller from the 712. Um, yes, 
the um, reports. Thank you so much for those reports, Gus. Appreciate it. Um, but I wanted to just, I didn't want to be a spectator because, you know, that's not good. So, but I don't know if this is construct, constructive or not, but I am one of those black people that watch the Ozark series. And I, I was actually watching it with some of my other family members. And we were just saying that we were talking about how it's like some black people out there. I mean, I know this is just a movie, but. I don't think they're out there for them. I was just telling them, like, yeah, you know, there's no black people out there because all the white people told them to leave. So thank you for um, telling me about this book because I didn't know about this book, but I, I, I automatically knew that if there's no black people somewhere in America, it's usually because white people told them they couldn't stay there. But on the Ozark series, there isn't, well, there was two black people in the Ozark series and Neither one of them were from Ozark. They all came from out of town. So, okay, thank you so much for having the cows today. Kimberly Harper, and dig this. Now, this is on her faculty page. Kimberly uh, Harper, the white woman who wrote the book on why you don't see any black people on the Netflix classic, The Ozarks. Her book is White Man's Heaven, The Religion of White Supremacy. That's just what we were talking about, right? White Man's Heaven, The Lynching and Expulsion of Blacks in the Southern Ozarks, 1894 to 1909. Now, on her faculty page, Kimberly Harper is listed as an eighth generation Ozarker. That means that her, let's see. We'll put four of them on it. Maybe great, 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 great grandparents were a part of this expulsion. We shall see. I didn't even go. In fact, there were so many books to put it in context. The only reason that I saw this title and was like, oh, my gosh, I need to get that book is because I took those pictures and I was able to actually look at some of the titles that I hadn't paid attention to after I actually left the library. I wasn't looking for that book when I got there and I got the book I intended to grab it. That does happen at the library frequently. You will. Oh, look at this. I didn't even wasn't even looking for this. Lots of things might lots of books might catch your attention. But yes, we will see if we can get her on the program. Yeah. If you've seen the television show about the Ozarks. I bet you this book is way more interesting and will tell you, yeah, why are there no niggers? You got all these crazy white people and all this. No niggers out here. How did that happen? Hmm. Other folks. I can't wait till yeah, comes on. Is she coming on tomorrow? I'm sorry, guys. Is she going to come on tomorrow? Tomorrow is the Global Sunday talk on racism. Oh. Uh, just reached i just found out about the book yesterday so i haven't i didn't even get the book much less read it i didn't even get it i was going to get my strom thurman material and zachariah walker material and like i didn't even crack that book or read the full title of it until i left the library and then looked at the pictures like oh man what is this white man's heaven why didn't i grab that what compensate hopefully down the road i will let folks know if we can get kimberly harper on the program 
Let's see. Other folks uh, who dialed in with their hand up. We have commentary this year. Proceed. Can I be heard? Our caller in Ohio. Yes, sir. Uh, oh, okay. So, Gus, yesterday, um, when you were speaking about uh, the Harvard Business Review, I believe it was, and you said something of the effect of they called, I guess, the game of uh, corporate racism like a game to be played. Some statement they made had like uh, came off as if they're saying everything's a game. And when I thought about it, it took me back to when I used to hear the older black folks when I was younger talk about being in corporate America, you have to play the game. That's how they would say it. So if it was like, oh, if they want to get that job, they're going to have to play the game to get the job. And so I just figured I'd present that because it is something historical that I used to hear quite a few, in particular the older generation of black folks, the boomers and some of the greatest generations who would have been our grandparents. They used to say that quite a bit in politics and things of that nature. I remember hearing uh, some of the talking heads who were the black talking heads in media when Obama was running for office, they spoke about him having to play the game. So I, I think that might tie into it in some way, but I could be off near Mars. Um, to the caller who was, who was speaking on the events happening to that black community in Tennessee, uh, something of interest is I, I wasn't a part of it, but a community that I know of was a predominantly black community of the township and um, a municipality next to that township wanted to get some land from them. Well, on that land, a, one of the three major automakers built an um, auto plant there. Now, the place where the land was at resided in the black part of town, right? So what happened is the white folks went to the elected officials of the black part of that town and said, hey, you know, uh, this big automaker is going to be coming to your part of town. We want to help you guys out. So here's what you can do. Since we have uh, water, like city water, right, instead of the other part, the black part of town had wells and, you know, septic tanks and stuff of that nature. So they didn't have the infrastructure per se. So what they said is, hey, you know, sign that plot of land over to us. And when the automaker builds all that stuff, we'll help get the water in there because we got access to it. And then once it's all said and done, we'll sign, we'll sign the land back over to you after it's done. And we'll just take a small little fee for helping you out. Well, long story short, the black elected officials did what the white elected officials in other town wanted. And after the auto manufacturers built the plant, guess what? That plot of land was never returned to that black township. Therefore, they missed out on all the tax revenue and all those things. So it's, it's a multitude of ways that uh, these white supremacists like to play economic warfare when uh, pertaining to black people um, getting some type of economic prosperity as a group, as opposed to maybe an individual black person. Um, I also wanted to say, Gus, did you hear, I'm not a big sports fan. I just happened to come across my Twitter feed, but staying with the theme of uh, white supremacy's raping black males, I don't know if you know who Deshaun Jackson, I believe that's his name. He's the ex-quarterback for, I believe, the Houston Texans. Um, 
he was accused of some type of sexual misconduct with some women. I, I guess he hired massage, massage people, masseuses or something like that. Long story short, I guess around 22 women filed uh, civil lawsuits against him, as is stated. But uh, I guess Houston, um, what would that be called, a prosecutor of Houston or wherever they are, decided there weren't any charges to really be filed on the criminal side. So they said, hey, no criminal misconduct. Uh, the guy's free to go. But nonetheless, he has, uh, I guess, 22 civil lawsuits for sexual misconduct with misuse. And they said it's ranging from, I guess, he uh, so supposedly, as they're saying, that he made some of the misuses give him oral sex, and then supposedly he uh, ejaculated on two of them in front of four of the other ones. It's crazy. But long story short, I guess they traded him, and the white folks on Twitter are going crazy because, I guess, the Cleveland Browns, uh, in Northeast Ohio, that would be the Northeast Ohio Cleveland Browns football team uh, traded to get the guy. So now they're starting to go on a smear campaign about how um, devious, I guess, the Cleveland Browns are for picking up this, you know, black male uh, rapist or, or or King Kong type black male running around, you know, trying to sexually assault all the women. So I figured that would be an interesting thing for you to look into because, I know uh, that that's a big part of your platform, you pointing that stuff out. Um, to the other guy who was talking about the Ukraine and America and uh, talking about them going at China, saying China don't get involved, don't mess with it. I think in part, a lot of times, black people, we don't actually pay attention to global stuff. So at times it could seem as if, you know, the same tactics they use against black people, in particular black people, I, I don't mean non-black, non-white, I mean black people, the tactics they use on black people don't generally work all the time against others as it does for us because we're dependent. Understand this, China like acquired a bunch of American companies in the early 2000s. Quite as kept, they, had, they have a lot of intellectual property of crucial parts of American life. That's not only economically, that's uh, technology like stuff that goes in jets that you get on to travel here and there. China has a whole lot of knowledge on American infrastructure and things that if it really comes down to it, the new battlefield is through technology. It's attacking infrastructure, shutting down ways of transportation, pipelines, electricity, even if they have knowledge on what's in those jets that are flying over your head, they will use it to prove their point. And China is a country who has that type of expertise not just from them being a manufacturing hub of almost any electronic that's in our household, in the vehicles, in medical equipment. There's a report that came out that there's a whole bunch of medical equipment that gets put inside of human beings. That's like uh, those things uh, when you have diabetes, like the insulin pumps, things for that go in people's hearts when they have heart attacks. Well, a lot of these things work off of being able to communicate wirelessly. Well, those things are attack vectors. The chipsets are made in China. So if they really want to go at China, China has some ways to mess up Americans in ways that we don't really get because China makes everything. So it sounds good hearing Biden talk that stuff, but even he knows it's not like dealing with black countries where they're beholden to white countries because they don't produce anything. 
they're just a place where the white people could come and yank resources out of. China actually produces a lot of the stuff in our household. They produce a lot of medical stuff, including Russia. Russia's company, Kapersky, had a huge government contract with the U.S. government, by the way. The U.S. government was dealing with a Russian-based antivirus firm. What that means is they had access to pretty much any computer in America. They have knowledge on American infrastructure in a way that we are not used to seeing. So just take a lot of that banter that they're talking to China and Russia as banter because those two countries also have the capacity to knock satellites out of the sky with a missile. There's only roughly three or four countries that have pulled that off. And that's America, China, Russia, I believe India just did it within like the last five years. So hopefully that gives you perspective on what you're seeing occur. Yeah, you should expect to see America try to jump up big with African countries and Caribbean countries. But when it comes down to it, China and Russia have had their hooks in the economy of America and have supplied the U.S. government with very sensitive technologies that makes it where they got to step lightly. And with that, I'll mute my mic. Step lightly, plied their hooks are metaphors. Want to be specific uh, about things uh, as much as we can. Much obliged, our caller in Ohio. Uh, I guess I'll make sure I get in quickly. One, the I'd forgotten. We were having the discussion about the land. Our previous caller mentioned, and our caller in Ohio was echoing his earlier point. Uh, when they come in to displace black people and say, oh my goodness, we got some valuable resources or what have you. That was mentioned in the news segments as well. They were talking about vehicles as well. They were saying with the increase in gas prices related to sanctions and all that, as they say, uh, that, uh-oh, so-called Native Americans, it looks like some of these resources are on your land. Hmm. Be prepared to move. Same thing that I said for the folks in West Tennessee, Mason. Same thing. You already know. You've been here, been through this many times over uh let's see go in order to the other two components the situation i believe it's deshaun watson is uh the fellow black male rapist of the day um that is like a long running situation uh where he was formerly employed by the houston texans and they had all these allegations that sexual misconduct and he can't you know behave himself with his penis uh, and they were going to trade him but they had to wait for resolution in all of this. Incidentally, with that, the report that I have seen or reports that came out repeatedly, some of this could have been resolved earlier. Mr. Watson did not or he wanted the findings publicly disclosed. He wanted to contest this because he said he didn't do, didn't do anything wrong. They moved forward and then no criminal charges. As our caller in, caller in Ohio uh, reported, he said, I didn't do anything wrong. I'll be vindicated. I'm not, you know, doing anything, copping a plea or whatever. Let's make everything public because I didn't do anything incorrect. So no criminal charges. At least they don't have any enough, enough evidence uh, to proceed with any charges. Okay. Now, even that now, Hey, ham sandwich. That's the metaphor they use. If we want an indictment, we can get an indictment, especially a black male and sexual misconduct. We can get an indictment. No indictment. No charges filed. Now they got all these civil suits. Now, he has a lot of money. He can decide what he wants to do if he wants to fight it, pay it off, whatever. But, I mean, hey, as far as the NFL, that's why the trade happened. Now he goes to Cleveland. I've seen this before, too, where something gets adjudicated. This is not some old Jeffrey Epstein 
where this never got adjudicated and we just had rumors and nobody did anything. Woody Allen. No, 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 no. This got adjudicated. No crime. Same thing they did with Chauncey Billups. This got adjudicated. He gets hired as a head coach. Oh, my God. Can't bring this raping nigger out here to Portland. My God. Get him out of here. Ah, and they fuss and ruin his whole. He comes out to, hey, I got this job. Thanks, everybody. Aren't you a rapist? Dang. <laughs> a new job. We're not, I'm going to get to sell it. Shut up, raping blackmail. Same thing with Deshaun on that. Police already said, nope, not filing anything. He gets traded to Cleveland as opposed to, hey, we got a new quarterback. This is great. Get our first championship since Jim Brown. I already said Walter Beach the third. Already mentioned on the program. We get our, our next championship. Ah, got this raping black male. Ah, I didn't rape anything. The police. Ah, now they got to go out and apologize, and we feel bad and talk to all these groups and what have you. Deshaun Watson also raping tendencies apparently. If anything, that would be a, another opportunity to give out very stringent reminders uh, to young folks. Well, one, football brain damage, yes. Uh, but then also, hey, very easy for someone. You'll be a target. You'll have money and what have you. Very easy. You don't want any situation where there's any confusion, where there's a misunderstanding. Nothing of the sort. In fact, you don't even want to put yourself in position for something like that to happen. Young person, Lots of earning potential. Keep yourself safe. They should have like courses for young athletes to take on this sort of thing so they can try and avoid some of these problems. The Brian Banks School of Protection or something like that. They can come up with a, a good name for it. But yeah, that can get bad quickly. Uh, the whole situation on Ukraine, hopefully we'll be able to chat about it tomorrow. Global Sunday talk on racism to hear a global perspective on what is happening both with now the China being included in this <laughs> consistent threats uh, against non-white people in this part of the world and the non-white people that are exiting the area, just all of it, really, even just to see how they're much closer to the epicenter of all of this, to see how this is being discussed in Europe. Tune in tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific Global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, we'll get to hear non-white people on uh, what they've been hearing, non-white folks who are closer to all of this. Uh, any other folks have comments that they wanted to make sure they get in before we get ready to wrap things up? Uh, you know what? If, if I can add something, this is New Jersey. Um, yeah, that was real interesting what the caller was talking about, and I'm, I'm definitely going to tune in tomorrow. Because that's definitely correct. Like, you know, these nations, I mean, they're definitely, you know, white nations. They definitely, the thing is, when we talk about black black people that's uh, in America, like, I mean, we're not a nation. So, I mean, we don't really have the leverage that a country would have. But just the fact that, and I emphasize this when I talk to people, you know, especially when we talk about, you know, the rape, the raping black male or, 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 you know, the rap thug or, you know, we talk about the, the gangsters in Chicago. It's not going to be the, uh, young black male with his pants sagging or, 
with locks in his head or cornrows that's going to destroy the planet or not even destroy the planet, but just basically can basically really alter what we know as civilization. It's going to be white men in business suits and white lab coats. Like that's the real threat to the planet. It's it's not it's 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 not you know uh, you know the the gangster rapper. It's not the you know what we perceive to be the mugger or the chain snatcher or the rapist you know the rapist black male. And and, and I I think that we need to understand that you know so. You know that I, I was I was really emphasizing that in my conversations with other victims. You know what I'm saying? Like these people are dangerous, and we we really just don't really realize how dangerous these people are. Not understanding racism, white supremacy, and or what it means to be white, very very common uh, amongst victims of. Racism. Uh, that's why we have the program. Try to make that a point of uh, emphasis uh, about that. I would only add white men and white women uh, will be a part. You have lots of white women, white women uh, in powerful positions uh, throughout this area of the world, throughout the world, period, even in the armed forces, uh, who I'm sure will be a part of all of this mayhem and destruction. Uh, will be interesting to chat it up tomorrow. I know for at least the years that I've been participating and listening to studying racism, white supremacy, I do find it interesting. China consistently will be spoken about sometimes not saying it happened today, but that'll be the one area where people will speak sometimes as though they are not subject to white supremacy, racism. And I've concluded that that just cannot be the case. Uh, Racist man, racist woman, racist child can show you better than I can tell you. Yes. Individuals classified as Chinese, yes, they too are subject to racist man, racist woman, racist child. We do still have that racial hierarchy. The non-white, darker people treated the worst. Absolutely. But that does happen pretty frequently. So-called China being talked about as though they are not subject to white supremacy racism. Uh, uh, Gus, I'm sorry. Just real fast, if I can ask something, and this is, this is also something that you can take into consideration when we talk to talk about Russia. Russia was also, when you look at the history of Russia, they 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 also were basically um, interbred with like the Mongol invasion. Because when they talk about Russia, sometimes you catch them kind of talk about Russia as if Russia is not necessarily European. And I wonder if the fact that the Mongols invaded the area of Eastern Europe and basically interbred with them, if that has something to do with the mistreatment or the exclusion of Russia as it relates to the whole European hierarchy of, uh, you know, Western NATO power. Um, I'll close with that. Much obliged. Uh, The nation, at least for me, there's one nation on the planet 
the white nation. The individuals classified as white wherever they may reside or wherever they happen to be born at, they are not excluded and that is the nation. They might fight, squabble, argue with each other from time to time. They even have their hierarchies amongst individuals classified as white uh, as who is most supreme and who has the most power but generally speaking as a collective that is the nation the race the white nation wherever they want to go whatever they want to do throughout the known universe anywho my view I could be an error but we will return to all of these subjects in about 14 hours give or take global Sunday talk on racism hopefully I have the live feed uh, corrected by Sunday afternoonish uh, so it'll be uh, easier for folks to listen online again the archive should be correct for this one uh, much obliged for folks who participated live hope it was worthy of your time and energy uh, the book club Thursday Essie Mae Washington Williams normal time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific Strom Thurmond man he lived to be a hundred years old I guess if you're going to live to be a hundred you can do things like he did, like have a long view, like I can be into child rape because I'm going to be here until I'm 100 years old. So that way I can just be raping children. He he was 66. He got married again, marries at 66, marries a 22 year old. Strom Thurmond. mentioned Woody Allen earlier in the program, right? Lots of things. You can find all kinds of details at the library. Anywho, much obliged for folks tuning in. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, protecting our health. Uh, if you're out and about, man, you see Jay Rankin, police officer and firefighter? Duck. He may have the entire fire brigade with him, armed and ready to go out with some mayhem. Uh, if you didn't leave your residence, prepare to kill and or die. Exit. You can, well, I guess you'd be calling the police to report on the police and or fire department. So do the best that you can, but you do not want to be out and about uh, with everything as stressful, chaos filled as it is looking to get involved and instigate when you never know who has a gun. If you're in a vehicle, you are sober, buckled up, not on the cell phone. Uh, we need all of our attention. And we're trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Jay Rankin. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time. We are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling. No gossiping. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Shut I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>